if you does everybody have a notebook if you don't there's uh there's plenty of them up here grab one grab one for each one of you yeah there's some back there too good deal How's everybody doing today? All right. Good deal. Well, I'm looking forward to this time, and I think this God's going to do some neat things. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for another day to, to be alive, to know you, to belong to you. Lord, and we are your people. And we ask you in Jesus' name and for his sake that you do a mighty work in our lives today. We need you. We approach you because of your amazing grace. We approach your throne of grace with confidence. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us and in us. We believe it to be true. We believe your word to be true. We confess our dependence upon the Holy Spirit now the Holy Spirit to teach, the Holy Spirit to move and to bring about a sanctifying work. We pray for the, just a filling of your spirit this morning in each of our lives. We pray that we would rise up beyond information. We would rise up to the place of being a prophetic people further than any of us have ever been. Well, we just ask you to do that kind of work. And we, we believe you're glad to do that. We believe you've ordained this time, that you set it up, that you set us on a course, that anytime something like this happens, Lord, you, we're getting caught up in what you're doing on the earth. So we give you all the credit, all the honor, all the glory. We just ask now that uh, give us a spirit of revelation. Give us an, a spirit of illumination of your word. And Lord, in the... Uh, Take all of us further now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, if you're just coming in, please grab a notebook. There's some back here. If we run out there, there's some up here. We've entitled this Hearing the Voice of God, and during this time we're going to talk about, really, what does the Bible have to say about this? We're going to talk about what is, it, what is, what is New Testament prophecy. We're going to talk about dreams and visions, and really try to understand from the Word I think we really got to start off by answering the question, and for, for, for some of you, you think, well, of course we shouldn't have to answer that question, it's obvious, but we have to answer this question, I think, and that is, does God still speak today? I'm not saying does he speak through his written word, I think most professing Christians would believe he does that, but does he speak beyond that, in addition to that, directly to his people in accordance with his word, but does he speak today? Are we a prophetic people? Is the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 that Peter got up and said, this is what was spoken of the prophet Joel? And, and is that, is that, does that make us a people that should expect to hear from God? And so what I want to do is I want to tell you a little bit about my personal pilgrimage in this, and then we'll... Uh, begin to look at some of the arguments that I was taught in seminary, arguments on why God doesn't speak today. 
And what we'll do is we will go through each of those arguments because I was delighted to find out later on that those arguments uh, were not only, you know, lacking in really any biblical argument, but that they were wrong. In fact, the Bible taught otherwise. When I first became a believer in college, the, the man who discipled me was, was a statistics professor at Louisiana Tech University, and he was a A.W. Tozier E.M. Bounds disciple. So he was evangelical, but he was mystical evangelical. He believed God spoke today. He taught me that God spoke today. And, it's, and I'm so grateful I had that beginning of really believing that that's the kind of God we had, a God that wants to talk to us. And so I, but my, so my last two years of college, that, that was a, a big part of, of my spiritual life. And then I went to seminary. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I went there only because a couple of the men who had discipled me went to that seminary. I didn't know one theology from another. All I knew is I loved God. These guys went there. Maybe I should go there. And so that's why I went there. It wasn't it was, There's no other choice that was involved in me making that decision to go there. I didn't know what dispensationalism was, cessationism. I didn't know anything, anything about any, any of that. I just knew I loved God. I wanted people to know Jesus. These guys discipled me. They went there, so I guess I'll go there. And that's why I went there. Now, after my first year, because you start right off, I mean, I took a first year of Greek in the summer, then I took my second year of Greek, my first year, I took my third year of Greek, the second summer. And, and so I was really trying to put myself on a fast-paced course. And one of the things that was, there's a book written, I think it was written my first year in seminary, and the title of the book was Decision-Making in the Will of God by Friesen. And basically he argued, and he was a Dallas Seminary grad, he argued that the only way God speaks today is through his written word, by principles and applications of his written word. That's the only way he speaks. And he had several arguments for why, he, why that was true. And so, again, I'm, I'm only first-year seminary student. How am I going to argue with this guy who's got his doctorate, right, from the seminary that I thought was, you know, the spiritual, you know, pilgrimage we should all take? And so I started reading going, I guess I was wrong. Even though I knew all those times God spoke to me, I'm still thinking, well, maybe I just didn't see things right. So the next three years, my, my second, third, and fourth year of seminary, I basically uh, really leaned the direction of that's, still, that's the way that God speaks today. He speaks through his word and through principles in his word, applications in his word, through a good Bible teacher. But the idea that he would speak to you in a dream or a vision, that was all first century stuff. Anyways, when I got out of seminary, it's interesting because once you get out of seminary and you realize, you know, you're not going to stand before the judgment seat of Dallas Seminary one day. <laughs> you're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. And so I kind of started going back and really saying, now, what do I believe? What am I willing to stand before Jesus to give an account for? So I started writing and I wrote, a, I started writing papers just about what I believe to be true. And and then I started realizing, wait a second, all these arguments that were presented to me why God doesn't speak anymore today, they're all wrong. And I started thinking, am I the only guy seeing this? And then I started finding other people who were, were, were making the same type of arguments because at that time in my mind you had, you had like 
you had two, two extremes. Again, to understand my limited exposure to Christianity at that time, was you had the people that I was involved with, that, which were traditional evangelicals. And then you had the way out charismatics that went to Robert Tilton's church. And I didn't know there was anything in between. That, that, so I thought, I know I'm not going there. So I guess this is where I'll plant right here. So understand, that's part of, part of my thought process. But then I started going through realizing, wait a second, these, these arguments are wrong. And God does speak today. And it was interesting, the same time I was doing that, the study, God was, gave me more. I had, I had like, in one week I had three or four powerful God dreams that were so detailed and, and, and were fulfilled dramatically. At the same time, God was showing me that he speaks, I mean, through the Bible, he's also giving me this, this you know, unusual amount of revelation I was receiving at the time. And so it was really a powerful impact. I'll tell you a, a funny, funny story. Some of you guys have heard this. Uh, there was a, four guys on an airplane, and, and, the, and the airplane's about, you know, it's, it malfunctions in, in the air, and it's going to crash. And so the pilot, but the, you know, the problem with the plane is of the four guys, there's only three parachutes. And so the pilot, as soon as he realizes the plane's malfunctioning, he reaches and grabs a parachute and says, my, my family needs me. I'm sorry, i got to take one of the parachutes. Puts it on and jumps out of the plane. Well, another guy that's on the plane, is, uh, he's an engineer, and he, he runs over and grabs a parachute and says, look, I think I might be the smartest man in the world. The world's going to need me. I need a parachute. He puts on a parachute jumps out. Now you've got one parachute left, and you've got two people on the plane. One's a minister and one's a Boy Scout. So the minister walks over to the Boy Scout, and he starts explaining to him, son, I know you're young, and you have your whole life ahead of you. I know I'm going to heaven. And he, he's basically setting up that he's going to give the, you know, the parachute to the Boy Scout. And right before he can finish, the Boy Scout interrupts and says, Cool it, Rev. The smartest man in the world just jumped out of the plane with my knapsack. (laughs) (laughs) My point is simply this. Some very smart people have done some very dumb things. Okay, so just because someone, in fact, one of my uh, really good friend and also professor, Dr. Norman Geisler, was... uh, uh, he used to say PhDs because he would, he would debate PhDs on the existence of God all over the country. And he said uh, PhD stands for phenomenally dumb. That was his. Uh... And so just because, uh, you know, don't automatically think somebody must be right because they have certain credentials. You know, evaluate it yourself. Okay, so let me tell you, in the midst of all this, so what, what hit me and what really unnerved me while I was at seminary, so here I was, I was going through this transition of believing that God spoke today and then, and then being challenged with all these biblical arguments that he doesn't speak today. And at that time, we're talking 1980, 1981. And at that, at that time, one of, the, one of the graduates from Dallas Seminary was uh, Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll. And he was kind of the post, poster boy of Dallas Seminary. I mean, he was at the pinnacle of... With, of his popularity, and I think there's more, there's more notebooks up here if, if you want to grab one. No problem. Go ahead, guys. You're not going to bother me walking around here. All right, the pinnacle of, I mean, he was, he was a giant church in California. He, had, he was at the pinnacle of his uh, popularity on the radio. He was authoring a book a year, and so he was, he was the man. Well, he's invited to speak at chapel. 
at Dallas Center. Now, understand when you go to when a chapel was required, uh, and all the students sat in the chapel, and all the faculty sat in concentric circles on stage, ha- you know, half circles, you know, and it was like the almost the holy of holies up here, you know. <laughs> And you had like three concent- half concentric circles around the speaker of PhDs. So Swindoll walks up there and he begins to speak. And in the middle of his message, he just stops. And he turns to the faculty and says, I feel sorry for a lot of you men. And he leans the other way, I just really feel sorry for you. And so we're all going, what's he going to say? He says, I feel sorry for you because you have developed a theology so tight that God can't even speak to you. And you could have heard like a pin drop. And I'm sitting there going, that's right. God does speak today. So I just want you to know, so during my seminary days, I was, I was wrestling with this whole, whole issue. So what I want to do with you this morning as we start off here is I'd like to evaluate some of these arguments the seminary was using in those days, and, and are, many are still using today, arguments why God doesn't speak. And I want to show you why each of these arguments is wrong. Because I think you need to know that because you'll probably hear that. Okay, so let's walk through them. Here's the first one, and I'm breaking this into biblical arguments against God speaking, theological arguments against God speaking, and experiential arguments. I'm going to break them into three categories, but let's just walk through it. Here's the first one. Biblical arguments against God speaking today. Here's how it goes. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the argument for this passage goes like this. The final and ultimate revelation of God has come through his son. God spoke through his son. What could be better than that? The life of Jesus and his teachings give us everything we need for godly living. Now just stop there for a moment. That sounds good, doesn't it? That sounds like a pretty good argument. But let's think about it for a moment. I'm going to give you my response to each of these. Okay, here's my response. Number one, even after Jesus ascended, we read that in 1 Corinthians that God gave many revelatory gifts, Right? So even after Jesus ascended, what do we see in the church in Corinth? We see words of knowledge and words of wisdom and prophecy. We see revelatory things happening after Jesus ascends. That alone, you know, nullifies this argument that God doesn't speak because the ultimate revelation was in the Son. We see he was speaking revelation after his Son ascended, all right? Also, number two, The ultimate revelation is Jesus, but that doesn't rule out inferior revelation. The New Testament is superior in revelation than the Old Testament, but that doesn't rule out the use of the Old Testament today. It is still revelation, okay? Also, let's look at a a second biblical argument that was used to, to say that God doesn't speak today except through his written word. It was like this, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The argument from this passage goes like this. The scripture gives us all we need to be adequate, 
equipped for every good work. So why would you need more than the written word of God? Okay, here's the response. Why that's not really a slam dunk argument. The Bible is one part of our equipment that makes us adequate, but it's not all our equipment. We need the Holy Spirit. We need faith. We need the spiritual armor of Ephesians 6, etc. We need to hear God today and follow how he leads us. So that argument doesn't close the case either. Let's look at another argument, biblical argument, that I was presented, why God doesn't speak today, and that goes like this. Direct revelation came only to extraordinary believers. In other words, it was only the prophets and the apostles or those directly connected with them or sanctioned by them that received direct revelation. Well, is that true? No, that's not true. All right. Response. The Bible is the story of special people. We take our examples from them in every other area of faith in godly living. Why not in hearing God's voice? Hebrews 11 says that we are to imitate these people. And they heard his voice, so why shouldn't we want to hear his voice? Also, in Ephesians 1.17, the Apostle Paul prays that normal believers would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation. Acts chapter 8. Philip is not an apostle, and he hears from God. Acts chapter 9, Ananias is not an apostle, and he hears from God. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is hearing from God in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 11, Agabus is a New Testament prophet, that God, and God tells of a coming, fam, a coming famine. Acts chapter 15, we have Judas and Silas. We also have Philip's four daughters, are all prophets. So you can't argue that they're just special people. You have, we're beginning to see all kinds of people with, that aren't, aren't even named. We don't even know Philip's daughter's names. And uh, yet, they're prophetesses. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 says, The gifts of prophecy, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, etc., are all functioning in the local church among regular believers. Okay, it was, it was church-wide. So this argument, again, it doesn't hold any water to say that it was only really the apostles and the prophets and special people. You see that it was something happening in the church, church-wide in Corinth, for example. Okay, D, direct revelation was necessary because the written revelation had not yet come. That's another argument that we received. And we heard that a lot was, since we now have the completed Word of God, the canon of Scripture, and it's closed, then we do not need to hear from God anymore because we already hear through His written Word. All right, well, let's just look at a passage together. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts 16. And if you didn't bring your Bible and you don't have your device or whatever, there's Bibles and seat backs in front of you and grab one. Because I'm not going to put verses on the screen. You're going to need to look up a lot of verses today. Acts 16, familiar story. And I want to read it. Particularly verses 6 through 10. It says, and this is, this is the Apostle Paul and his team, his ministry team that are traveling together. 
It says, and they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, here's, here's the point I want you to get primarily from this, this passage, and that is the Apostle Paul could have had the entire complete, completed Bible in front of him and not known he wasn't supposed to speak the word in, in Asia and not know he's supposed to go to Macedonia, Right? He could have had the entire completed Bible and not known the answers to those, to those questions. In fact, this passage right here is loaded with God directly communicating to this apostolic team. Okay? Uh, otherwise, the same happens with Philip in Acts chapter 8. You know, he could have had the whole completed Bible and not known he's supposed to go speak to, in a desert to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? And also Ananias. He could have had the completed Bible and not known he's supposed to go talk, you know, go check out the Apostle Paul, right? And uh, Cornelius in Acts 10, with all the scriptures, they would not have known the specifics of God's direction that they needed in these passages. And back to Acts 16. Now, why wouldn't God let Paul preach the gospel down in uh, Asia Minor, basically today's Turkey? Now, that's a real interesting story. I love this story because what you have here is you've got you guys, you know, he, and get a map out and look at this sometime. I mean, God drags the Apostle Paul and his team across the country of Turkey. They're not permitted to speak. Bithynia is like northern Turkey, like in the Black Sea region area. He drags them all the way through Turkey. They're not permitted to speak the gospel. That's what they want to do, right? And then across the sea to, to, a river, to Philippi, to a riverbank where there's some women on a riverbank seeking God. I just love the story because, because God sees these hungry hearts, right? These hungry hearts that are seeking him. He, and he basically expedites getting them the gospel as soon as possible. Like, you don't speak to anybody, let's get you there. Because God just attracted to hungry hearts. And he, and he drags them all the way across. I just, it's, what a, it's just a great story. But Paul would have never known uh, just from a, a completed Bible that he was supposed to do all that. Okay, and here's, and here's the point that's in your notes as well, I think, is God cared where Paul planted churches and he led them. Doesn't he still care today? Doesn't he still care where, you know, to lead us in ministry? What's changed? What's changed? We still have unreached parts of the world. We still have people that don't know Christ. And uh, surely he would lead his people today. And so that argument really doesn't, doesn't work well at all, you know, I could just, I could tell you story after story how God has led us as a church, you know, from even, even just the places that we were to meet in. You know, we met, some of you may know the story, I think most, you know, some of you do, I know for sure, in this cross up here are, are 17 bricks. These 17 bricks were taking, taken from the building that we met in 17 years uh, across from Arlington High School in Park Row. And don't worry, we replaced the bricks, okay? 
But we took, we literally took 17 bricks out of that building, replaced them, and then Kent and uh, Kent and Kathy Judeman from our church made this cross. Surprised me with it one day. And our first Sunday here was an Easter Sunday, and we and we and we had a, that was covered with a, a cloth, a, a sheet, and pulled it off and and saw the story. But but how do we get to that building? Because we, we we met in a, a couple schools. We were just praying where would the Lord would have us meet. And I would literally drive around the city praying, asking. And I kept pulling into the parking lot of that building. And I would sit there and look at it. And I would try to, and then I talked to, you know, the owner about leasing it. And the owner at that time was a Jewish man. And the last thing he wanted was a church meeting in that building. So he told me no. And so I thought, well, God, I guess I missed it. So I get in my you know, truck and drive all around the city praying, Lord, where are we supposed to meet? And I drive, pull right back in that parking lot. And I sit in front of that building. And that happened three or four times. And so I just thought, I don't understand this, Lord. I mean, I know that this is the building, but the guy says no. Well, what's interesting is while we're praying, one of our, one of our elders, Fred Arnold, was, he's a real estate consultant. And he gets a a phone call from the owner of our of that center that we believe God's leading us to, and he and he he has no idea any of this connection. He calls a, a friend. And he says, "I need your help with a deal I'm making." And because Fred knows someone that, that he needs to help help with, and so he's asking Fred, you know, for help. And Fred said, "Yeah, I'd, I'd like to help you with that, and I'd like you to help me with something too." He said, what's that? He said, well, we have this little church that I'd like to meet in that building. And he said, what he said was this. He said, I'd rather have a lube oil center in my living room than have a church in that center. That's what he said. Fred said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, but we'll, but we'll make a deal. So he makes a deal. And in fact, he, in the process of making the deal, they're, they're about to sell the center, but he already made us a deal regarding the lease. They sell the center to a group out of Canada. The group from Canada now has our lease that he agreed to. We got, the, we got our original space for $2.50 a foot gross. If you know anything about real estate deals, that's phenomenal. Not only that, but we had things in the lease about that anything that wasn't working, like the air conditioner and all that had to be replaced by the owner and all that stuff. And sure enough, we got in there, and the air conditioner was gone. Someone stole it off the roof. So the new owner from Canada had to put all new stuff in for us. I mean, they did nothing but lose money off of us. But, but anyways, so we ended up getting that building. And right next to that main center part of the building was a video store. Some of you guys that go way back remember the video store, remember the, the big old posters that were just foul about the movies, and, and so we, we had our offices. We had to, people had to park and walk by that to go to church. And so we're praying, you know, Lord, would you, you know, we, we need that video center. Well, I already had all the leases. I knew, who, I knew they had three years left on their lease, three years. I thought, we need it now. We need that space. And so, you know, I, 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 no one's, you know I'm looking around to see if anyone's looking. And I walk out, and I walk out, I lay my hands on that, in that video store. And I just say, in the name of Jesus. And I'm praying over this thing, asking for this building, right? I'm for this space. All right, well, that week I, I pull up, and the only parking space close to the offices was right in front of the video store. And I pulled up and parked there. 
I got out, I started, and as soon as I took a couple steps, the Spirit of the Lord spoke in my heart and said, it's yours, go in and take it. And I thought, well, just exactly how do you do that? That's <laughs> what I'm thinking, you know. But I'm going to obey what I think the Lord told me, right? So I walk into this video store. And understand, I've not even met this man. I walk into the video store, and no one's in there, and he's sitting at the counter. And I'm kind of hum-hawing around because I don't know what the, how do you take it, you know? I don't know. <laughs> so I walk in, and he says, may I help you? I said, uh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm the pastor next door, and I just, uh, what can I do for you? Well, yeah, I, I just, uh, I kind of wonder how much longer you're going to be here. This is what he does. He pulls a drawer out, takes a key out, slams it on the counter, slides it to me, and says, it's yours, take it. I'm leaving tonight. And that's what he did. He backed in a big old truck that night. In the dark of night, he got all his stuff. He disappeared. The next morning, the key's in an envelope in the church door. Of course, I needed to go talk to the owner, right, and make a lease and all that. I, said, I had the key. I said, you know, he left last night, didn't he? Okay, we're going to make a deal. He's glad to make a deal. But... I'm just telling you, there's, there's the leadership of the Lord. He still wants to lead us today, and we need his leadership. You know, Bernie, you probably remember this. We were, we were wondering at one time we were supposed to leave there before the 17 years we were there because we knew God had led us there, particularly for one of the reasons was, was to reach the high school and also to have be close to UTA and so forth because that's before we owned the Cornerstone. And one, and we were we were uh, praying when that we should move because we were doing three services in English and one in Spanish, and we're really crowded there. And again, as we're praying, and the Lord just what He spoke in my heart was, and it was just like the Lord to say it this way: "Isn't this what you asked for?" And I just began to cry when it because it was like, "Yes, this is what we asked for." So we're not going anywhere until you make it clear we're supposed to go somewhere. And I'll tell you the rest of that story. A little bit later, but but anyway, so God is still giving us direct revelation because we still need it. All right, E. Okay, direct revelation was necessary during the formative years of the church, but it's no longer necessary with the mature church of today. <laughs> you almost do you need to comment on that, you know? But I'm telling you, that's one of the arguments. That is one of the arguments that was given. Uh, back in my days of seminary. Response. Well, we never get to a place where we don't require warnings, encouragement, and direction. How could it be that they needed God's specific guidance and we don't? They were in a lot better spiritual condition than we are. The Apostle Paul needed it. We need it. Okay, here's another argument, biblical argument against God speaking. That is, the Bible never tells us to ask for or expect direct revelation. Because the revelation of the word is sufficient. Well, is that really true? Response, Jeremiah 33, 3. Call on me and I'll answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Luke 12. Let's just look this up. Look, 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 turn to Luke 12 a minute. Luke 12. Luke 12, verse, let's start in verse 11. 
Luke 12, 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Wait a second, I thought the written word was sufficient. No, we're told that there's times the Holy Spirit will give us what to say. And here's one of the times, obviously, during persecution. All right, let's turn to Luke 21. Luke 21, verse 12 through 14. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. And it will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I'll give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. So he promises to give us words to say, specific words, not just, he didn't just say, you know, the word account, you know, the written words are adequate, you'll have what you need. He says, no, I'm going to give you words to say at that time. All right. Okay, and also, we, you know, of course, John 10, there's enough for me, we'll probably come back to that again here, but I just, just touching that. Look at John 10. And I think I have John 10, 4, but, you know, add verse uh, uh, 27, 10, 4, and 27. Acts John 10, 27, where he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And, of course, Romans chapter 8, 14 through 16 for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that you are children of God. And I think, too, John fifteen fifteen is another important verse in the whole idea of God speaking today. John fifteen fifteen, when Jesus says this, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, but the, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. So, you know, friendship with Jesus, part of friendship with Jesus is he wants to speak to us, he wants to talk to us, he wants to lead us. Okay, here's another argument <clears throat> that I heard at the seminary that's not true, and that is, Direct revelation was audible, clear, and complete, opposed to what is happening today. Now, first reading, that sounds good, but let's look at it closer. Because what they would say is, if it says in the Old Testament that God spoke, it means that he spoke. It was always audible. Is that true? That's not true. In fact, look at the book of Numbers for a moment. Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible. Take a hard left and go to Numbers. Numbers chapter 12. Many of you are familiar with that story where Miriam is kind of murmuring against, and Aaron is against Moses. And then God disciplines them for that. 
And here's what, I want you to notice what it said in verse 6. This is very insightful about Revelation. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, and here's what God says. He says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So what he's saying here is that when he spoke to prophets, the normal way he would speak to prophets was what? Through dreams and visions. It was unusual the way he spoke to Moses. That was the unusual way. That's what it points out here. So the exception is through an audible voice. Now, some of you may have heard an audible voice. I have not heard an audible voice my entire life. I've not heard an audible voice. But I, I know his voice, but I've not heard an audible voice. And so to say direct revelation was always audible is wrong. It's not true, is it? Right here we see that that's not the primary way God spoke to prophets, but through dreams and visions. And, by the way, it was not, it was always not always clear. Okay, let's turn to John 12 for a moment. That was another argument that it was always clear back in the day, but today it's not so clear, so it can't be right today. Was it, was it always clear? John 12. Let's pick it up in verse 20. Now, there are certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and these therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and said, and told Andrew, Andrew, and Philip came, and they told Jesus, and Jesus answered, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life shall lose it, and he who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there shall my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul became troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Listen to this now. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The multitude, therefore, who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now stop and think about that. This, he says, this came not for my sake, but for your sakes. And someone thought it just thundered. So how was that clear? Some thought it was the voice of an angel. It was the voice of the Father. So based on that one, one, one example, you can't say that it was, you know, direct revelation was always clear because it wasn't always clear. I mean, it was, it was for those who had ears to hear, right? And so it was meant to be heard, but only those who had ears to hear can hear it. By the way, the same thing happens in Acts chapter 9. Remember the story at the, on the road to Damascus? The Apostle Paul has an encounter with the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ, right? 
And Jesus speaks to him. He speaks to him audibly. Now, Paul actually tells his testimony three times in the book of Acts. What he reveals in Acts chapter 22 is that when the voice came to him, none of the people who heard it understood it except him. So again, that's an argument. How can you say that every time there was direct revelation, it was always clear? It wasn't always clear. It was understood by those who had ears to hear it and those it was intended for. So you can't, that's, not a, that's not a good argument. So direct revelation was not always audible, and it was not always clear. How about complete? Was it always complete? Well, that's not true either. It wasn't always complete. All right? Think about Philip. Remember in Acts chapter 8, what's he told to go do? He's told to go to the desert, right? And then he's told to go up to the chariot, right? He's not, and then that's, it stops there. Once he gets to the chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch is reading Isaiah 53, then Philip's kind of like, oh, I got it from here. I think I know what I'm supposed to do now, right? And then he preaches the gospel. So he didn't get the complete... I mean, it, everything wasn't told up front. Here's what you're going to do, Philip. You're going to go to, the, to, the, you know, to this desert and to, to this chariot, and there's going to be an Ethiopian eunuch, and he's going to be reading Isaiah 53. And you, it wasn't complete. He was told one step at a time. All right? So, again, that argument isn't valid. It, doesn't, it is not biblically valid. So those, those are the biblical arguments that I was taught in seminary for why God only speaks to his written word and not directly today, and every one of them is wrong. They're wrong. All right, let's look at some of the theological arguments against God speaking today that I was also taught. The first one is this, the doctrine of providence. The example was the book of Ruth. Remember in the book of Ruth that it says that, uh, I love this, my favorite verse in the book of Ruth, it says that Ruth happened onto the field of Boaz. Well, of course, Ruth and Boaz end up getting married and they're in the line of Christ, Right? I mean, they're great-great-grandsons, King David. And then you have down the line, you have Jesus. I mean, it matters that Ruth and Boaz get together, doesn't it? But it just says, and she happened upon the field of Boaz. But here's what they would argue. They say, see, there was no need for direct guidance there. God's providence is enough. That was their argument. There was no need to tell Ruth to make sure she gets to that field because God's providence is adequate. All we need to do is obey the word of God and we will be where we're supposed to be, do what we're supposed to do. Now, there is a lot of truth in that, but that's not all true. We do need God's leadership in addition to that. In response, the doctrine of providence didn't rule out the need for direct revelation in the many cases we've already mentioned. So even divine providence, you know, we still, we still see that God needed to directly communicate in all those cases we've already looked at. All right, here's another one. This was a big one, too, when I was a seminary. The canon of Scripture, again, that's your completed Bible. The canon of Scripture is closed. Therefore, any claims of direct revelation is tantamount to adding to the Bible. How many of you all heard that one before? Okay. Oh, if you say that, you're adding to the Bible. But here's why that's wrong. Here's why that argument's wrong. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10 was, let's just turn there because you talk about one of the most abused verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll pick it up 
in verse 8 and make our way through here. 1 Kings 13, starting in verse 8, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. There's a time the gifts of prophecy are going to stop. It tells us right here, right? If there are tongues, they will cease. There's a time that tongues will stop. It tells us right here. If there's knowledge, he's talking about words of knowledge here, it'll be done away with. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Stop there. And here's what they were saying. When the perfect comes, that means the completed Bible. That's the canon of Scripture. So when the canon of Scripture is completed, there's no longer need for, for prophecies, no longer need for words of knowledge, no longer need for tongues. All that ceases. But we've got to keep reading, don't we? Because this passage tells us what, it, what it's talking about here, about when the perfect comes. The passage tells us. Okay, let's just keep reading. And, you know, you don't have to have some brilliant insight to get this. Let's just keep reading. Back to verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then, then, face to face. Now, I know in part, but then... When's then? When the perfect comes, I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So when we see him face to face, when Christ comes again, that's when the perfect comes. I mean, the passage is, is so clear. It's, it's talking about when we see Christ, when we meet him in the air. Then there's no longer need for prophecy. Then there's no longer need for words and knowledge. Then there's no longer going to be any tongues. That is when it stops. So you can't, you know, the Bible's clear about, tells us when these gifts cease, and not until then. Nowhere in Scripture does it state that the revelatory gifts of the Spirit have ceased. There's not, there's not one verse. I, and I tell you, I, I've challenged guys, who, you know, I say, show me, show me one verse in the Bible that these gifts have ceased. Show me one verse. They can't do it. There isn't a verse. That's the verse they'll use. And, and all you got to do is say, let's keep reading. Let's be honest here. And what happens, though, and, and we, all, we all do it more than we'd like to admit it. People, a lot of times, you get a position, you get a theology, and then you go to the Scriptures and make them fit your theology, right? Instead of letting the Scriptures determine your theology. And then when you realize, I've held a wrong theology, I need to repent from it. I'm repenting, Lord. I can't believe I've spoken against the very thing that I see now is true. Forgive me, Lord. Just be quick to repent from wrong theology. What happens, though, when, you, when, it, when you've got your Ph.D. in it and you're teaching classes in it, and whether or not you lose your job to seminary, it's, you know, it's harder for these guys to do that. Okay. Let's talk about arguments against God speaking today from experience. And they go like this. Most impressions are wrong. Many use God spoke to me to justify or add authority to their own decisions. History is full of examples of personal revelation has led many people into disaster. Claims of direct revelation invariably draw attention away from the Bible to a fallible human source. 
We put too much authority in a man or a teacher. Now, those, there's, there's, there's some uh, validity in, in, in each of those points. But again, I think these, you know, we got to realize that the devil definitely wants, you know, if, if prophetic ministry is, is a strength to the church, the devil doesn't want the church to have it. So what is he going to do? He wants to get the church so disgusted with all the abuses that church finally says, time out, we're not doing this anymore. I've had pastors ask because we've had lots of times with open mic. It's when we were a lot smaller. Every one of our services, we had a time to either read a scripture or give a prophetic word. And now, you know, I've gotten bigger. So people are intimidated to get up and do that sort of thing in the, in the Sunday morning. So you know, we'd rather see that happen in G-Hop and small groups. But, but you know, basically, you know, this whole idea of, you know, I, I think the devil wants to, you know, he wants to, to, to have these, all these bad examples. Because I had a pastor come to me and go, how can you have an open mic? What if, what if, what if someone gets up and says something wrong? I'm like, we can, we can deal with this. We, we'll be okay. We can, meet, we can manage this. We can, if it really has to be corrected, I'll correct it. If not, a lot of times someone would say something really bizarre, and I'd look out and everyone knew it was bizarre. And they'd look at me like, what are you going to do with that one, Gary? You know? And I knew that everyone knew that it was bizarre. Let's just move on with the meeting. But when it's obviously wrong and I had to correct it, I tried to do it without totally hurting this person's feelings because they've stepped out and, and tried to do it. But, but the church is strong enough to survive that, you know. But then you get one that's really gives so much strength to the church and you're so glad that you, don't, that you have it and don't mind cleaning up the messes. In fact, you guys remember that passage in, in Proverbs? It says, uh, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But with the ox, there is much strength. And so I don't mind having messes sometimes because of the strength that we get from the prophetic. I don't mind shoveling manure every once in a while. It's worth it for the strength you get with the prophetic. But all of a sudden, you just shut it down because you're scared you might have some abuses. You lose so much strength. And so we really, really need that. So our great need is to test everything by the written word. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is also very informative for the church today on how to handle the prophetic. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting verse 19. says this, uh, Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Just stop there. Now, why do you think he had to say that? Because people said, well, we've had it up to here with these prophecies. We've had a bunch of nutty people giving up, getting up and giving words, okay? We don't want any more. And so, and Paul said, don't despise prophetic utterances. But, he goes on. He says, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So, examine it. Test it with the Word of God, with the written Word of God. Test it. Examine it. You know, I, I tell people, if you believe in prophetic today and you believe God's speaking to you, then you need an open Bible in front of you more than ever. There was a couple that was part of our church, and they moved to another city for a period of some years that was, that was operating the prophetic, and they came back. And they t I said, tell me your experience. They said, well, when people started believing they could hear from God directly, 
So we started nicknaming our church the Church of the Closed Bible. I said, uh-oh. It's just a matter of time before that goes off the rails. I mean, you've got to test everything carefully to make sure it lines up with the Word of God. So the truth is God is still speaking today. The question really is, is anyone listening? That's the question. Is anyone taking the time to listen? Getting before God and saying, Lord, speak to me. Is anyone even doing that? Those who do will hear them. Because he is speaking. He, he loves, he, I mean, he's his very nature to speak. In fact, I was going to bring a radio in here and just turn the radio on, and I could start flipping through all the stations, and you'd hear all kinds of different music and talk. Because and, right now there's radio waves going right through here, right? And we're not picking it up because we're not tuned in. And, and right now, and God wants to speak, but will we, will we tune in to him or not? And we're going to talk about how to do that more in a little bit. But I believe those who want to hear his voice will hear his voice. Those who love his presence, he loves to manifest his presence. So the problem isn't that God doesn't speak today. The problem is that a lot of people aren't listening. I want to give you guys some quotes because uh, one of the guys that I really appreciated in church history is John Wesley. And a lot of the things that he, his impact, obviously the whole Methodist movement came out of that and and it's gone all kinds of different directions. And But... Uh, but John Wesley, people were trying to argue that he didn't believe that the gifts of the Spirit really still functioned during his day in the 1700s. And that's not true. I want, I, want to, I want to give you some quotes, exactly what he said about the gifts of the Spirit. Just listen. John Wesley, this is 1750. He said, The grand reason why the miraculous gifts were so soon withdrawn was not only that faith and holiness were well nigh lost, but that dry, formal, orthodox men began to then ridicule whatever gifts they had, not themselves, and to cry them as all as evil, madness, or imposture. So what he's saying is he's not saying there's, there's it's the verses that say they cease. He's just saying that the church got so you know so far away from God and so you know formal and and got, you know, and, and and so dead. That's why the gifts weren't functioning. And I agree with that. Churches where that's happening, yeah, the spirit's quenched. But he went on to say this. Again, this is John Wesley, 1750. The extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit were no longer to be found in the Christian church because the Christians were turned heathen again and had only a dead form left. Orthodoxy remained, but with diminished expectations. Unbelief reigned. The church had accommodated itself to secularism, and the power was gone. And that can still happen today. It doesn't have to happen. And we don't have to be part of that. So the truth is God does still speak today, but is anyone listening? So if you, if you really want to hear his voice, if you're really hungry for him, and you'll take time to listen, you'll hear his voice. And we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I'm going to give you a bathroom break now. All right, let's take about seven or eight minutes, and we'll come back. And if you didn't get a, a, a notebook, there's, are there any more up here? I see one up here. Oh, there's some back there. Okay. Let's go ahead and take about a seven, eight-minute break, and we'll come back. And I started thinking, well, what if, I'm thinking, why are we here? Why us 12, you know? And I started looking around the room, thinking, wait a second. And I started recognizing certain guys that, or pulled together, 
Guys, it all had kind of gone. And in fact, it was, it was quoted, they went the way of the vineyard. And I started realizing, wait a second, we're here because we're a special group of guys, you know? <laughs> anyway, so we're, he, we're playing these get-to-know-you games, and he says, uh, and finally, I, I asked the $64,000 question. I said, I, I just got to know why we're here. Why, why are we at this lunch, you know? I mean, I appreciate it, but I just want to know why we're here. He said, because you understand that Dallas Seminary had gone from being a non-charismatic to an anti-charismatic seminary, and there's a big difference. There's a big difference between non-charismatic and anti-charismatic. And that's where they were at the time before Swindoll came. And what he said to us, because I used to teach a course in the spring, uh, and not a course, I used to teach part of a course in the spring uh, every, you know, at Dallas Seminary, and all of a sudden I wasn't invited anymore. And no one told me why. And so Swindoll's got us all around. After I asked the question, why are we here? He says, I just want you to know that I want Dallas Seminary to be a kinder and gentler place. I said, oh, okay, I get it. I mean, he's, he's, he's basically saying we're off the blacklist, you know, and we're invited back in, you know, and type thing. And my door's open to you men anytime. Which is interesting because his brother, older brother Orville, who is a charismatic evangelist in Argentina, he said that he has no... He has no greater respect for any man on earth than Orville. So I thought, I bet they had lots of late night talks with coffee cup, you know, and stuff. But anyway, you could just, there was a different spirit there, and I appreciated that. I appreciated that spirit. Uh, anyway, let's go to the second section here is who God speaks to. So he speaks today. The question is, anyone listening? Well, let's see who he speaks to. Uh, Job 33, first of all, verse 14 through 18. Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision of the night, when sound sleep falls on men while they slumber in their beds. Then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction, that he may turn man aside from his conduct and keep man from pride. He keeps man back, keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from passing over into Sheol. Interesting passage, isn't it? God's still speaking, but is anyone listening? We must be willing and able receptors if we're going to hear from God and fresh from heaven. So let's consider who it is that he speaks to. What are the qualifications? Number one, uh, believers in Christ. What's interesting about the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 is God speaks to Philip, but Philip needs to go speak to the Ethiopian eunuch to hear the gospel. By the way, I was in, there's a there's a church in Ankara, Turkey has a hundred Turkish believers when I was there, and I asked how many, I asked how many of the hundred believers first had a dream or a vision about Jesus before someone came gave them the gospel. Out of a hundred, how many think said that they had a dream or vision first? Seventy. Seventy of them, which I was I was blown away. I mean, I was like, wow. What's interesting, in every case that I talked to, I talked talk to him individually, and one guy, in fact, the pastor had an open vision on a bus, downtown Ankara. He's on a bus. He has a vision. Jesus appears to him and says, I'm the way, truth, and the life. Then he spends the next two years trying to find a missionary to share the gospel with him, he told me. So I couldn't find somebody. I'm trying to find someone that would tell me more about Jesus. What's interesting is God still uses men and women to share the gospel. 
He may send a, he may send a vision or a dream to somebody, but they're going to have to hear the gospel from a human. That's how God set it up. In fact, look at Romans chapter 10 for a moment. Romans 10. Verse 13 and 14. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call upon him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? Just as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. So Cornelius, interesting, that uh, he's even told to send for, for Peter, right? And Peter's told to go, but Peter has to come pre- preach the gospel to Cornelius. And then you have the, the woman in Philippi in Acts 16. God sent Paul and his apostolic band. So the first thing they needed to hear was the gospel. When Jesus, and here, There's something interesting, too, I want you to think about. When Jesus died on the cross in Calvary... The veil, the veil of the temple was rent in half, right? Now, you remember, you remember between the holy place and the holy of holies, there was the, the veil of the temple, right? There was a thick, four-inch thick curtain. And who's, is only the high priest once a year is allowed to go into the holy of holies, right? Did you know they, they, they tie a rope to his ankle? In case he died when he went in there, did something wrong, they could pull him out and no one else would die going to get him? And so, but do you know what, 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 I want you to look at a passage. Uh, in fact, I think I have it in your notes. Exodus 25, 22. It was talking about the Holy of Holies. And it says, here's what God says about the Holy of Holies. And there I will meet with you and I will speak to you. I love this. There I will meet with you. This is the heart of God. I want to meet with you. I want to speak to you. Now when Christ dies on the cross, the veil is torn from top to bottom. It's like God does a giant karate chop. Access is now available. The same kind of access in the Holy of Holies is now available to us. And in the Holy of Holies, he said, I want to meet with you. I want to speak to you. That's, that's the heart of God. And that's the heart of God today. I want to meet with you. I want to speak to you. And uh, aren't you glad? Yes. Aren't you glad that that's how he is? So we are priests of God through faith in Christ. And he wants to meet with us and speak to us. Now, it's important to remember another verse here, 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and a word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. And I wrote in my Bible next to that verse, this, this phrase, apostasy and prophetic inactivity go together. Apostasy and prophetic inactivity go together. See, when the church starts to turn away from God, that's also when the church stops hearing from God. So, and by the way, and I think this is a word of the Lord for a few of you in here today, at least, in that, that you haven't heard from the Lord in a long time. There's a time you used to and you haven't. And, and, and the Lord's waiting for you to repent from something. You've, you've, slid, you've backslidden on and come back to your first love and you'll start to hear his voice again. Apostasy means just, it's like falling away. It's when the church is falling away 
from God, okay? Okay, let's look at uh, who God speaks to, those, those who want to hear, those who really, really want to hear his voice. And these two passages you're familiar with, Jeremiah 29, 13, and Deuteronomy 4, 29, they say the same thing. One of them says if, one of them says when. If or when you seek God with all of your heart, then you find him, okay? If you seek him with all your heart, you find him. And who do you find? You find one who wants to meet with you and speak to you. So seek with all your heart and find him. I, I got to confess something to you. One time I was real busy in ministry and I wasn't taking a lot of time to wait on the Lord. And, and I, was in, I was taking a shower and it was like two or three times in a row God would speak to me in the shower. Finally, I said, Lord, why do you speak to me in the shower? He said, because that's the only time you stop to listen. I said, okay, I'm going to change that. Job 23, verse 12, here's the heart of Job. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I can't tell you over the years how many people have come to me and said, I have a real decision, a big decision to make. I want you to pray for me about it. I want to know if you get any words for me. And I'll say, well, have you, how, have you prayed about it? Uh, well, some, I mean, have you prayed and fasted about this? Have you sought the Lord hard for this? And that's why you need to start there. You seek them. You seek them. I'll pray for you too, but you seek them. Because I think, I think if we just you know, automatically help somebody without them learning to do it themselves, in the long run, we're hurting them. They need to learn to hear from the Lord. Let's look at another passage. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. Proverbs 2. Three through six. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. But I just want you to see that, that desperation there. You cry for discernment. You lift your voice for understanding. You seek her as silver. Search for her as hidden treasure. There is a, there is a real seeking after uh, hearing from God here. And so let me also another thing that those who, uh, those who want to hear need to be those who are willing to obey. Think about this. Why should, why should God speak to you about something that he knows you're not going to do when he tells you? Right? So there needs to be a willingness. In, and I, I like to say it this way. You know, when we approach God and want to hear from him, there needs to be a yes in our heart before he speaks. Say, I'm already saying yes. I just tell me what it is. And you will hear from him. Let's look at John 7, 17. Starting verse 16, Jesus therefore answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but he who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Here's another interesting verse in Psalm 119. I don't know 
When's the last time you guys were in Psalm 119? Psalm 119, verse 100. Psalm 119, verse 100. Actually, I'm going to start verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged because I have observed your precepts. This whole idea of of understanding and, and, and perceiving because you're also obeying. I just want you again to see that connection. So there really needs to be a willingness to do the will of God if we expect to receive much revelation from God. And why should he give us revelation? I mean, it's part of, part of, of the heart of God is he doesn't want to bring us... There's greater condemnation. If we have greater revelation that we're not going to obey, there's greater condemnation that comes with it. So sometimes God withholds some revelation so they don't receive greater condemnation. We see examples of that in the New Testament, right? Where he's withholding... Uh, Revelation, because that would just be greater condemnation. Uh, you know, he's talking about was it Capernaum and who Capernaum and someone else. If Sodom and Gomorrah had your revelation, and so he so he doesn't do many, he doesn't do much revelation there because they're already rejected what they received out of his, out of mercy. So the more we respond to a little light, then we receive more light. And so it's, uh, and, and there's going to be faith, there's going to be faith involved too. Look at uh, look at Romans twelve for a moment, because if God if if God starts speaking to you prophetically or continues or increases speaking to you prophetically, it's going to be according to your faith too. Proverbs twelve verse six. Romans twelve verse six. My sorry, I'm sorry. Romans twelve verse six. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. You know, it takes, it takes some faith to, to step out and give someone a prophetic word. And, and there's a lot of people, and I've been, we do these, every, when we go overseas and minister, whether to national pastors or to overseas workers, one of the things we do it that and what I'm part of is I want to have a, a personal ministry time every evening that everybody can, can be part of and make sure every worker or every pastor who wants to be will receive a team praying for them and prophesying over them. And, and a lot of times there will be someone that hasn't done that much in a group and they'll be a little scared to say something. And then afterwards they'll say, I got the same thing you got, but I didn't want to say it. I said, Prophet, it's going to take faith. You're going to have to have some faith to say these things. And here's the deal. If you really, I mean, we got to be willing to walk that line between humiliation and glory. You don't know what, you understand that? In other words, if I'm not willing to risk being humiliated, I'm never going to see the glory of God. If I don't step out and risk it, I'm not going to see the glory of God. Our first time, one of the times we, I was one of the first times in China that I, I, I prophesied over uh, the whole group was there was 75 uh, young pastors. And the Lord had laid it on my heart while I was there to, to have this, this, this time of ministry. And so I was, I was thinking about it and praying about it. And then they came and asked me about it. I thought the Lord really, you know, is confirming it more and more ways. And it was really neat because I had... I had three godly Chinese men that spoke English with me. Two of them had their doctorate 
well, one of them had a doctor, one had a master's in theology, and, and one, another one was was a leader in a, another church in another city, and powerful men of God, but they never they never prophesied over anyone before. And and so we decided we were going to do this, and so we started. We had these. It went, it went like four hours, and they would just bring like ten people in a line, and we'd go through the ten, and then another ten would come in the lineup, and we didn't know how to do it. That's just kind of came to us. But what was really cool was we had prayed that the Lord would give us the words we need. So we started off, the first two hours, they're just with me. And they're translating, you know. And the Lord has given me a word for every person. Now, I don't know it. I don't know what I'm, I mean. I don't, you know, you can't make this stuff up. You either get it or you don't, right? So you go up, and a lot of times, one time I laid my hand on their shoulder, and it would just occur to me. That's how it happened. It just occurred to me. I didn't go into a trance. It just occurs to me what they're going through or, what they're, or, or where they're headed or something. And I just start praying it out loud. They would translate it and then they begin weeping and stuff. Why? They're weeping because it was exactly what they needed to hear from the Lord. And so we do this for about two hours. And then I look up after two hours and the two guys, two of the pastors, the Chinese pastors, they just went off on their own. And, and uh, one of them said to me, I think I got this. And he just took off. <laughs> You know, he started prophesying, and then he started prophesying. And I thought, this is awesome because I'm, I'm getting tired. I'm going to go sit down, you know. But, but it took, you know, it's according to your faith. There's going to be times where you're going to have to step out and risk it, saying some things. And, uh, and, when, and when, you, when that happens, it'll embolden you. Especially when someone's like, how would you know that? Well, I didn't know that. And why would you pray it that way? Because that's, that's, that's the same way I was praying this morning. And you use the same words. And that's because God knows the words you use. And he, that's why he's speaking to your heart. So little things like that. But it's going to take faith. It's going to take faith. And we'll talk some more about, more about that. Okay. Uh, who, who hears from the Lord? Those who do not, will not exalt themselves. Those who receive great revelation in the Bible were the humblest people who ever walked the face of the earth. And it seems that the greater the revelation they received, the more humility they possessed. In fact, Moses, in fact, it is kind of funny because Moses wrote numbers. And it says, he says, it says, Moses, it says in numbers that he was the humblest man that walked the face of the earth. <laughs> I thought that's kind of awkward, I imagine. <laughs> You're writing that about yourself. But, uh, but you know, he, he wouldn't, when Miriam and Aaron came up against him in Numbers 12, he didn't defend himself. And that's part of being a humble man or humble woman is, you know, you stop defending yourself. Let God defend you. He just wouldn't defend himself because in his, in his humility, he was a broken man. He didn't give in to anger when he's attacked. He appealed to God, and that's what humble people do. Now, David, again, we have a humble man who received tremendous revelation, man after God's own heart. And uh, some of your, your, your favorite psalms were written, most likely by David. And... Uh, he wrote those on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But do you know that God, after, even after David anointed as king, God left him in the wilderness for 10 to 20 years. He's already been anointed as king. He's in the wilderness running for his life. And what's happening there? I think you know, he's having a wilderness experience. It's interesting. Moses had this wilderness experience, right? David has a wilderness experience. John the Baptist has a wilderness experience. Jesus has a wilderness experience. The Apostle Paul has a wilderness experience. 
So don't be surprised if you have a wilderness experience. You say, well, I want to hear from God. Well, that might be part of it for you. Somehow God's going to keep, keep you humble. We're going to need it. The prophets, Isaiah 66, verse 2. I hope this will become one of your favorite verses. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. John the Baptist, according to Luke 7, 26, Jesus said John was a prophet. In fact, he said John was more than a prophet. He was receiving great revelation from God. What marked his life? John chapter 1. Wonderful story about John the Baptist. It starts off, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. John understood that. He understood he was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. And then, of course, he's baptizing in the wilderness. And so the Pharisees send some people to go ask him some questions, remember? And they come up to him. You almost picture somebody, today's reporters with a microphone. So, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And he says, no, I'm not. Who are you? The prophet now. He's talking about the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, who is the Messiah. But they said, are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Then why are you baptizing? In other words, what are your credentials? He says, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. In other words, John never even gave his name to him. Never even gave his name. He said who he wasn't. Then he said, all I am, in other words, I'm no big deal. I'm just a voice pointing to him. I'm not the light. He's the light. It's all about him. And then later on, am I even worthy to unlash his sandals, right? That's the heart. And that's what, so you say, why was John, Jesus said no one's greater than John the Baptist. I think that's why. That's why no one's greater. And so humility is crucial if, you know, if you're going to see more and more revelation from the Lord. Also, we see that in the apostles, Peter and John. You know, Peter and John in the, the healing of the lame man. Remember how, you know, everyone just really thought there was something, something special. And uh, it was, uh, in fact, let's just look at, turn to Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 3. Let's look at that passage. Acts chapter 3. You know, the lame man's healed, dramatic healing. The whole place knows it. Acts 3, verse 12. But when Peter saw this, saw what? Well, verse 11. While he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this, or why do you gaze at us? as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk. Do you see how quick they are to, 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 to humble themselves? You know, there's nothing big about us. It's the name of Jesus that heals them. And uh, they're, they're quick to do that. There's, that's tremendous hum humility in this statement right there. Also, the Apostle Paul received... Second greatest amount of revelation in the New Testament after 
Apostle John. And Paul calls him, in fact, in this order, he says, he calls himself least of the apostles, least of the saints, greatest of sinners. And, that's, and if you date, where you, put, where you said those different statements and date those epistles, that's the order. I'm least of the apostles. Next thing is, you know, I'm least of the saints. Next thing is, I'm greatest of sinners. And also notice his humility. Let's look at Acts 14. Acts 14. Starting in verse 8. And at Lystra there was a certain, uh, sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who when he had fixed his gaze upon him, and seeing seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. And when the multitude saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the uh, like, Lyconium language, The gods have become like men, have come down to us. They began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, who's whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garland to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowd. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you. And preach the gospel to you in order that you might should turn from these vain things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth to see and all that is in them. I mean, it's just, you know, just quick to humble themselves, right? quick to deflect anything, any glory, quick back to God. And even, even, even with that heart, Paul, Paul still has to have a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Because of the great, he said because of the great revelation he's received, right? He wrote 13 epistles in, the, in your New Testament. And, and he said that he still, you know, that the Lord had to send this thorn in the flesh uh, that he would be, you know, would not exalt himself. You know, even when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, it's been my experience that God still has to humble me. And, and if we want to walk in greater revelation, then understand that we're going to have to walk in humility and we're going to need his help to do it. And he will oblige. <laughs> okay, do you know why humility is so important in the lives of those who receive direct revelation? Because... With revelation comes authority and power. And authority and power are easily misused for personal gain on the part of the person who has it. Authority and power are usually misused to hurt others. Those whom God can entrust with revelation must be humble. Their ambitious desire for prominence and power must be diminished, and the desire to reign over people must no longer exist. Then God can trust us with the authority and power. Then God can entrust us with revelation. You know, you hear about some of these guys that they, they catch and they find out are really, really frauds in ministry. A lot of them didn't start out as frauds. When there was a time they were hearing from God. But then they started exalting themselves or allowing themselves to be exalted. And they stopped hearing from God, so they started making it up. But a lot of people automatically assume they were always frauds. A lot, they, a lot of them didn't start that way. They, were, they started off as men who were hearing from God. And then they began to 
not hear from them, but they had to keep the meeting going, right? Instead of saying, humble themselves and saying, Lord, I'm, what, you know, I'm not hearing from you. Show me what to, you know, how to repent. So those who hear the voice of God are not only those who can trust God, but those that God can trust. They will not steal his glory. They will not mistreat his sheep. So if you want to hear his voice, you can, but you must be rightly related to him through faith in Jesus Christ. You must want to hear. You're willing to spend the time in discipline yourself before him. You're willing to seek his face with all diligence to hear from him. You're willing to obey him. Why should he speak to you if he, if he knows you're not going to listen to him? And you must be humble. If you want to hear from God in order to bring attention to yourself, you're probably not going to hear from God. Okay, let's go on to New Testament prophecy. We'll go a little bit longer before we take a break here. New Testament prophecy. Again, before we get into this, I want to remind you again that the primary way that God speaks to us is through his written word. Okay, and I'm probably going to say that four or five times here this morning. The primary way that God speaks to us is through his written word. We need to be students of his written word, all right? And so that's really, really important. If we're too lazy to seek him in his written word, then we're foolish to think that he's going to speak to us a lot directly, okay? So we can't, we can't be, we got to do the work of being in the Word. Uh, again, now many of you come out of a tradition that says God doesn't speak, and we've talked a lot about that already, but I just want to, again, encourage you to, to today make sure you, re- you repent from some of the false beliefs that you've had and to help you really uh, hear from God in the future. Look, let's look at Mark 7 for a moment. Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, verses 6 through 9. This is the whole idea of if we have a tradition that's contrary to the Word of God, we are to repent from our tradition and obey the Word. Okay? Mark 7, verse 6, and Jesus is talking here and said, And then rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as is written, that this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me, but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. So we just got it. Anytime our tradition is contrary to the word of God, we just we repent from that tradition. Now there are certain spiritual gifts that, Bible, that a lot of people consider controversial spiritual gifts. A good friend of mine wrote a book entitled Those Controversial Gifts. And he's in heaven now, but he uh, actually edited the book. He wrote one chapter, one or two chapters. A lot of different guys wrote chapters, basically talking about gifts like, you know, tongues, speaking, interpretation of tongues, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy, and healing. And he called, and the name of the book was Those Controversial Gifts. And I thought that's an interesting title because those gifts are controversial to some groups, but they're not controversial in the Bible at all. And the reason they're controversial is because so many people have developed a theology that says those gifts don't exist today. And here's, here's part of the problem. Again, part of the problem is, 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 is making, is, is twisting the scriptures to fit your life as opposed to bowing your, your life to fit the scriptures, you know. It's a lot easier just to, to have a theology that you don't have to change anything about your life. And then go to some verses and somehow manipulate them so you don't have to change. And that's not, that's not what we're supposed to do. 
Okay. Uh, anytime our, our experience isn't lining up with the Bible, then we, 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 gotta, we just got to say, okay, Lord, I want my experience to line up with the Bible. I'll give you an example. I, I was, the first couple years of our church, so we're talking about uh, probably, probably maybe 80, 88, 89, or 89, 90, right in there. I was, it was clear to me from the scriptures that God still healed today. But I wasn't seeing it in my, in my ministry. But I, I saw it in the Word. So I only concluded, my conclusion was, well, uh, then somehow I've got I to gotta, I gotta line up with this truth because I, I want to see healings. So I began to pray for people at the end of the service. I started at the end of the service, I closed and say, if anyone needs healing, come on up, but the rest of you are dismissed. And I prayed for them, and they didn't get healed. And I did that for two years. For two years. I prayed for people at the end of services, and no one got healed. And I thought, it's, I know it's in the book. I know you say it, Lord. So at the end of two years, I've dismissed everybody, you guys, you know, and if you need healing, come up. And I'm thinking, okay, we've got one lady here. I'll go ahead and pray for her and go to lunch. My expectation was not high. Okay, so she's, she comes down. She's got crutches on. She can't put any weight in her feet. I don't know what's wrong with her. She sits in the front row, and I said, let me pray for you. It's like, put my hand on her, on her foot. I said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. And it was like a lightning bolt hit me right here. Electricity shot down my arm. When it hit her foot, she, she falls back and says, what was that? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Let's see if it worked. She gets up. She's totally healed, gets her crutches, and she walks out of like this, you know, the crutches of her shoulder. So I'm thinking, got one. But I'm just saying that we, you know, we need to keep believing what the Word says, and if our experience isn't lining up with it, keep pressing in. Keep pressing in and believing till it does. And so I think God's going to, you know, God wants to take us there, and it's gonna, things are going to be according to our faith. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about those controversial gifts for a moment. We already looked at 1 Corinthians 13 a little bit, and I just want to re- remind you in that passage talks about uh, when the perfect comes, he's talking about face to face. So the minister of the prophetic, God speaking directly to us, will not be taken, will not be removed until we see Jesus face to face. All right? So make sure we're all tracking on that one. Okay, and also, one thing I do want to say too about gifts. Now, there's, we're all his sheep, so we all can hear his voice. But some people will be gifted prophetically. Not everybody is going to be gifted prophetically. Even though we're prophetic people, there are people that are going to be gifted, especially even out of that group, okay? So we're prophetic people. We hear his voice. We're his sheep. We hear his voice. But there will be some that will also be gifted, even, you know, just to hear his voice even more so. And so I want you to keep that in mind, that not, and not everyone is going to necessarily have that gift, but he says that we should desire that. So desire that you would prophesy and, and ask for that. I do. I ask for it. Often, give it. I need more, Lord. I need more. So the heart of God is to speak to us, and, I, and it's interesting. We see it right from the beginning. 
In fact, you see it in the Garden of Eden when he, he's, he's with Adam and Eve. And I don't know how you picture God being in the garden. How do you picture him? But I think he, had, I think he took on some form. And, you know, I mean, I don't think you're speaking into the air when you speak to God. I think he's, he's, he's taking some form on, and he's, and he's, hang, he's talking with him. He's hanging out with him. Because he goes looking for Adam right after Adam's sin. He's looking for him. He's walking, he said he's walking through the garden. He's walking. I mean, it's his heart to want to be with us and to speak to us. We see that, you know, in the tabernacle when Israel's in the wilderness. The whole tabernacle is set up so people can meet with God. That's his heart. You know, and then there's the temple. The whole thing is that people can meet with God. And then you hear, the, you hear Ezekiel and Jeremiah both saying, and God speaks to him and says, but there's a time coming where my spirit will dwell in you. I mean, you see God's heart. Why? I just want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to talk to you. And so that's just his whole heart is to speak to us. This whole idea that, that, that God, you know, would, you know, not want to speak to us directly anymore just is, is against how we see his, him acting with people all the way through, through biblical history. He wants us to have this relationship with him. So he does still speak directly to you. Let's talk about New Testament prophecy. I'm going to break it down into number one, the personality of New Testament prophecy. So let's start there in your notes. The personality of New Testament prophecy. Now before we get into understanding what New Testament prophecy is, what its purpose is, how it functions, so forth, it's important that we understand what it is not. We're not talking about something on the same level as the Scriptures. The Old Testament prophets spoke and wrote the words with absolute divine authority. They wrote the words of God in Scripture for all time. Let's look at 2 Peter in your notes there, verses, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. So to disobey the Old Testament prophets' words was to disobey the Word of God. They spoke the very Word of God. Okay, now, the New Testament apostles are the New Testament counterpart to the Old Testament prophets. This is real important that we get this. We have Old Testament prophets that spoke with divine authority. We have our Old Testament. We have New Testament apostles. I spoke with the divine authority. We have the New Testament. Okay? So that, and we have this in 2 Peter 3, 2. That you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. So that's, that's, where the, that's the equality of the word of God in the Old Testament came from the Old Testament prophets. The word of God in the New Testament comes from the New Testament apostles. All right? New Testament prophecy is something different. New Testament prophecy was used by Christians who did not speak with absolute divine authority, but simply reported what God had revealed to them. Okay, that's different. And I want to make this case here for you in just a moment out of 1 Thessalonians. But I'll tell you, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a guy that came to our church. And we had, it was a Wednesday night service. And when the church was a lot smaller, we had the Wednesday night service. And that was a good time for us to do personal ministry every week and also have prophetic ministry. And this guy came. I'd never laid eyes on this man before. So it was, it was ministry time at the end of the Wednesday night service, and he's standing there. I didn't know anything about him. 
I'll go ahead and tell you uh, what about, about him, though. He was a worship leader in another church. In fact, I'm not going to tell you his name. I'm not going to tell you what song he wrote. But he wrote a song that became one of the most famous Christian songs ever sung. Okay, and, and so I go up to lay hands on him, and I'm praying for him. And I just get this, this image in my mind. I see him, I see him with a guitar on the stage. And I see him uh, st- standing, there's, there's, like, there's a shadow on the stage, and then there's light. And I see him come and stand, and half of him is in the light, half of him is in the shadow with his guitar. That's all I see. And I begin to just say what I'm seeing. So I just, I see, I see you, you know, coming out of the shadows with your guitar, and I see you standing there, and you're halfway, and you're trying to decide if you're going to go all the way to the light. That's all I say. Well, he just collapses onto his knees. He begins to weep. Because he actually had left his ministry position and went into a homosexual lifestyle for several years. And now he was coming back, but he was wrestling with it. He was wrestling with it. And so it was like he's half light and half dark. And, and so, I, I mean, I don't know any of this. I'm just telling him what I see, but that's exactly what he knew, right? So he just begins to weep right there and begins to cry out to the Lord. And, we've, and then we saw a period of restoration in his life in our church, and then he moved away, and he actually fell back into sin. But since then, he's been restored again, and now he's leading a ministry in another state. And it's, it's, it's a powerful ministry of, of, of people coming out of the shadows. But I just, so a lot of times, you, you know, you, you, you get the, you get a, you get the uh, impression or you get a picture, and one of the mistakes we make is we try to interpret it too fast. We don't know necessarily the interpretation of it, Right? But the person you're talking to, they may know the whole story. Just say, I just say to someone, I'll say, does this mean anything to you? And then, yes, it does. And this, you know, and, okay, well, let's pray about that. But that's, 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 not this, that's a prophetic word as opposed to the proven, tested, authoritative written word of God. Okay? Now, I want, I want to show you something here in the book of Thessalonians that really helps us distinguish between the authority of the written word of God and a New Testament prophecy that must be tested, all right? All right, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I think it's in your notes there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, uh, Apostle Paul speaking for the Thessal- to the Thessalonian believers, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Wow, stop there. I mean, because he's talking about as apostles, we gave you the Word of God. You accepted it as the Word of God, right? There, there was no testing of this. This was the Word of God from the apostles, okay? All right, now let's flip over to chapter 5 there in your notes and look at the passage we just glanced at a little while ago. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Okay, now if the New Testament prophecy equaled God's word in authority, he would have never had to tell them to not despise it and to receive it. I mean, because they had already received and accepted God's word from the Holy Spirit, right? 
But here he says New Testament prophecy must be tested. Do you all see the difference there? Okay, from the apostles, this is the word of God to be accepted. It is proven, tested word of God. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. But New Testament prophecy is different. Okay, it must be tested by the written word of God. Test everything. Now, to test everything implies that some things are not good. Since he encourages them to hold fast to that which is good, right? Remember he said we see through a mirror dimly or through a glass darkly as, prophet, as prophetic people? And so, so you test it. There's going to be some people are going to give words that they're just not words. You know, but you test it. Uh, and, and, and you just, and there's got to be room for that. There's got to be room in the body of Christ for people to fail. There's got to be room in the body of Christ for people to make some mistakes. There's got to be room for that. There's got to be room for people to grow in things, right? The, the church is strong enough to handle that, right? We don't have to be scared of that. What if they say something that's not right? Well, we test it. We test it. And we don't, you know, rebuke them and, you know, blow them out of the water if they miss it. You know, we just say, well, you know, encourage them, come along. It's all right. But test it. Hold on to that which is good. And, you know, they never said to test the apostles with apostles were getting because that was the word of God, the authoritative teachings of the apostles. So the first thing we must understand about prophetic ministry is that it had less authority than the Scriptures and must be tested by the Scriptures. Okay, we all got that, right? That's big. Okay. It's crucial that if we're going to be people who can hear God's voice today, that we must be people of His written Word. Again, the primary way that He speaks today is through His written Word. We must be people who know the Scriptures and can discern His voice directly. You guys know the story here real quick, of, and it's in your notes here, of Peter. Remember, Jesus told us, asked the disciples, who do you say the Son of Man is? Remember that? And Peter jumps in and says, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Jesus say about that? He says to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. So Peter heard from God, right? Five minutes later, <laughs> Right? Jesus says, I got to go to the cross. Peter says, I can't allow that. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So he heard from God. Five minutes later, he heard from the devil. And he didn't have, he didn't discern the difference at the time. Now, he obviously grew in that. And, you know, after Pentecost, it was a real different situation. But, but we need to be able to discern who, we, there's lots of voices, Right? Not every voice is God. So how do you discern if you're hearing from God? Well, that's why we have the written word of God. You know, we've got to be able to test it, to test that we are hearing from God. Okay, so if you want to hear the voice of God, then we've got to be students of the Scriptures. Otherwise, we're easily deceived. All right? We need to know the written word of God. Know them. Know the word of God. Be a lover of it. Meditate on it. Know it. New Testament prophecy is great, but it carries less authority than the Scriptures. It must be tested by the Scriptures. So make sure you know the Scriptures. I will say this, too. Uh, some of my most painful experiences in ministry have been by uh, come from people with false words. And if anyone's had an emotional reason to want to say, okay, guys, we're not doing this anymore, 
I would say that I, I have plenty of emotional reason. You know, we've had some letters that have been written to me in the name of the Lord told me to say this to you. Some dreams that supposedly they had, uh, things that have been, you know, said that weren't true in the name of prophecy that have hurt me, have hurt other people. And, and so there's, it's got to be tested. We've got to be careful with this. You know, it's a, it's a dangerous thing, too, if, it's not, if, it's not, if it's not, we're not being careful in testing it. And so make sure that we test it all by the written word of God. That's, the, that's basically the, uh, there's the verse, Proverbs 14.4, I mentioned earlier, where no oxen are, the manger is clean, but with much increase comes by the strength of the ox. So we got to clean up some messes. Sometimes it's even very painful, but the strength outweighs the hassles of the messes. And by the way, every time I've done a, a, a worker retreat or a pastor's retreat in different countries, and you have worship times, you have messages, you have free time, then you have personal ministry time, and then we ask them to, get, to we give them a survey at the end a lot of times and ask them what really ministered to you the most. What do you think it was? I tell you, almost, I mean, almost every time it's the personal ministry time when they receive you know, prophetic words from the Lord are prayed over because they, you know, because the people, some will say something that speaks exact language that they've been talking to God about and they realize God knows me. He's talking to me. He, he heard me. And it means so much. That means so much more than so many other things. So there's so much power in it, guys. All right, let's talk about the purpose of New Testament prophecy. First Corinthians 14, 3 tells us, it was for edification, exhortation, and consolation. First Corinthians 14.3, But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. It was not primarily for correction or direction. Say that again. This is a big one, guys. It was for edification, exhortation, consolation. It was not primarily for correction or direction. You know, we had a one, one uh, night of worship ministry probably three or four years ago. We had some guy that was visiting. I'd never seen him before. And he gets up and takes a microphone, and he starts doing this corrective, prophetic correction to the congregation. And I just walk up to him, because he has his eyes closed when he's doing it, too. And I walk up to him while he's doing it, tap him on the shoulder, and says, give me the mic. Because I don't even know who this guy is. He doesn't know these people. He doesn't, you know, love these people. I love these people. And if there's a rebuke or correction comes, it needs to come from shepherds who love them. Not from some, you know, guy who just came in off the street. You know, so I just stopped in mid-sentence. And he was offended. You know, he's offended by me, and I'm sorry about that. But I'd rather him be offended by me than anybody else get hurt by this word that wasn't even right. You know, wasn't even correct. But, you know, he's going to give this correction to the church because he's, you know, man's, God's man, you know, of the hour. And he's got God's word for the people. And I'm like, then I asked him the question afterward. Because he, I said, uh, uh, who's your pastor? And, and typically what they say is, oh, Lord, thy God, Lord, thy, my God is my pastor. I'm like, that doesn't work here. You've got to be under some authority. God's over all of us, but you got to under, you can't go around giving prophetic words here if you're not under authority. 
It was interesting. I don't know if you guys remember the Brownsville revival down in Pensacola went on for two and a half years or something. And they were having people come from all over the country. It was really interesting. I, I went down there a couple times just intrigued by people were running down, weeping and repenting. It was, a, it was a really a move of God. It was a genuine move of God, at least at one point it was. And they had, we're asking the question, some pastors were asking these guys what they do about prophetic words in the meetings. Because they got people come from all over and they want to, he said one time they had a woman come in the meeting. She was wearing these flowing robes and she had a, a bird on her shoulder. A live bird. I'm talking about a giant, big old talking parrot of some kind. Okay? And she walks in with a bird on her shoulder. And they're all like, everyone's thinking, oh, dear. What's coming from this woman? You know? And she sits down, and the security's got their eye on her, you know? And sure enough, during one part of it, she stands up and starts giving this railing, you know, prophecy. And they just stopped her and said, stop. Stop, be quiet, sit down can't give a word here. Of course, she's thinking, you know, you, you know, you're resisting the Holy Spirit and all this kind of stuff in her theology. But here's what they ended up doing. Because they had that kind of activity, they decided that no one could give a word in a meeting there unless they had a, uh, a, a, a one-page double-spaced letter from their pastor saying that they were up-to-date in their tithe and they were under spiritual authority in their local church. They came up with it. I didn't come up with it. That's what they came up with. And they had to have that presented before they could give a word. Now I think, I wonder how they got there. I mean, they probably had all kinds of messes for a while. They finally said, look, we've got to do something to make sure they're under authority around here. That's what they came up with. Now, you may not agree with that. That's not my point. My point is, is that, you, you know, you're going to have situations in churches that you can definitely need to, to have some way in which you can, uh, you know, you can actually gauge them and make sure things are being done right, and it's not for correction and direction. Now, I do believe that it's possible for someone to receive a corrective or directive word from the Lord for the body. I do believe it's possible, but how is that presented? Here's how I believe it ought to be presented. I believe if someone does get a corrective or directive word for the body, they bring it to the elders, the shepherds who love the sheep. They and the pastors will administrate it if it's from the Lord. If it is from the Lord, we probably already heard it. You know, or we'll get a word confirming it because God only speaks more than one way when he's, trying to, when he's speaking to his people. So I've had people give me envelopes of their dreams and visions and stuff. And, I'll, and they hand them to me. And uh, I'll say, let's see, you know, I want to look these over. And, and part of what they want to do is they want to make sure I do what's in those dreams. They want to make sure that I really do what they think God's telling this church to do. And what I'll say if they handle those things to me, I'll say, Thank you, you are now free. You do not have to make sure any of this happens. It is on me. So you are free. And you don't have to be angry if you don't see happening what you think ought to happen. You are free. You did it. You're done. Okay, it's on me. And then I'll look at them and I think that if I see anything that looks like it might be the Lord in it, I'll take it to the elders. And then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But, you know, there's got to be care. Before you, before you bring correction and direction to the body of Christ, it, it needs to be done by people who, the, first of all, that the body looks to and, you know, respects. And also, but, but leaders who love the sheep. The sheep have been beat up way too much by prophetic people. I mean, one time, you know, we have security in our church now. 
And uh, there, there's nowhere, anytime you're on this property, there's somebody watching out for your safety. We have some great godly men that are, are, are trained in our security. Because we live in a different kind of world, right? It's a dangerous world. But early on, we didn't have that. And one time we had a, a meeting, and, and it was during, it was like we had a fellowship break, and some guy comes running in the building, and he runs up and goes, where's the pastor? Where's the pastor? And this guy's like a madman, you know? And he, he runs up to me, and someone says, well, there he is. And he runs up to me, thus says the Lord, my God, the Lord says to you. And he starts doing this thing to me, you know? And I'm standing there. And three or four of our real big guys kind of gather around him. Like, they look at me like, should we kill him? We like him. It's okay. It's okay. Let's go. Let him finish. Let him finish, right? And when he's done, I asked him the question. I said, uh, so who's your pastor? The Lord, my God, is my pastor. So what's your name? He said some name like Jonah Ben Noah. I don't know really what's your name. That's my name. No, really, what's your name? I mean, it's so bizarre, you know. I had a some woman came one time in church, and she she came to me. She said, "I have a woman. I have a prophetess from Houston here. She'd like to talk to you at the end of the service." I said, "Fine, it's fine." So at the end of the service, she introduces a prophetess from Houston, and I said, "Hi, I'm Gary. Nice to meet you." And all of a sudden, she goes to her knees. And she grabs my feet, and she starts shaking. And she starts prophesying something. Then she grabs my ankles, and she says, no, I'm just listening. I'm listening, and I'm not stopping her because I'm thinking, it's not unlike God to use a very strange scenario to speak. So I'm, I want to listen. I'm going to listen here for a little while. She starts working her way up to my knees, and she's shaking. She's shaking. About this time, people are like walking by going, what is going on here? Okay. She starts to go up from her knees. I stop her. Yeah. I say, that's fine. We'll stop right there. <laughs> Thank you for your prayer. Okay. So I'm just saying, it, it may come in strange packages, that that doesn't mean it's not God. We, I think we ought to listen, but, but I also think if it's going to be correction or direction, it needs to come from the elders and the pastors. Amen? Amen. Okay. Okay, let's, uh, we're talking about the purpose of New Testament prophecy. Uh, B, it convicts some, disclosing the secrets of their hearts, bringing them to repentance. 1 Corinthians 14, 24, and 25. Okay, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever, ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, so fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. By the way, this, this can happen, prophetic ministry can even happen in the preaching of a sermon. Because, you know, I've had people come up sometimes that I'll say something I wouldn't even plan on saying. They'll just kind of come off the top of my head. And that'll be the one thing that this person says, yeah, I felt like you were reading my mail today. I'm like, really? But, but, but God was speaking to them, and, and then they're saying, well, God must be among you. Okay, provided insight for the selection of particular individuals for special tasks. We see that in Acts 13. Holy Spirit said, set apart for me, Saul and Barnabas, obviously. Uh, for the missions movement there out of Antioch. By the way, you know, almost all of our, our staff has come up from, out from underneath our church. And we, we, have, we, don't, we don't go out and hire from outside. We just believe that God's raising up people. So we have people in our church. I mean, Margaret worked at Memorex and personnel before she came on staff. And Don worked at Aerospatial Helicopters before he came on staff. And just the list goes on and on and on with people that were doing different ministries. They're doing, you know, volunteer in our church, and then eventually we just said, would you come and do this on our staff? And 
But the Lord would give us, there's a lot of the staff members, the Lord gave a dream. In fact, the Lord gave me a dream about Don before he came on staff. It was interesting because the dream I had was I saw him being delivered in a coffin. And I thought, what does that mean? So it's not the, not the kind of dream you run out, run out and share with Pamela right away. You know, it's like a, but I thought, but I saw him being delivered to the church, like he was being brought to the church, but in a coffin. But it was, but it was, but it was kind of bizarre, but it was like, and now he's ready to serve on staff. And so I didn't say anything to Don about that. And sure enough, uh, right when we're thinking about that he needs to come from Air Spatial to staff, Don then leaves Air Spatial thinking he's supposed to do something else. Then he goes to this, this, this kind of dying to self experience that was very deep. And, and the whole time it's going on, I'm thinking, he's in the coffin. You know? And I, and I, and I couldn't, I had to wait till the Lord was really clear about when we're supposed to invite him on staff. But he went through a period of time of just dying this deep death. He's already, you know, a man of God. There's no doubt about it. But God wanted to take him to another level. And then we invited him to come on staff. And it was just, it was, God kind of, he communicated that. Uh, and early on through a, through a dream as well. Okay, that's uh, also the solving of disputes. Prophet, prophecy was used, Acts 15. There were prophets there in the council that were solving that dispute about uh, the uh, Gentile believers and what was going to be asked of them not to offend the Jewish believers. The guidance for making various decisions, we saw that in Acts 16, was also predictive we see that a few times in Acts, Acts 11, 20, and 21. You know, there's only, you know, Tracy has a lot more dreams than I have. And uh, her dreams are, are long and detailed. And I mean, sometimes I'm brushing my teeth and she's telling me the dream. I'm like, does it have an ending? That's all I want to know. <laughs> but it just goes on and on with detail and stuff. But there have been a few times we've had the same dreams, the same night. And one time was back when we first started a feeding frenzy, and, and we only could get 25. We had 25 kids come, and we did spaghetti in, in you know, crock pots in one of the office, in one of the classrooms. And we both had a dream the, the same night. There were so many kids were trying to get in our old building that we couldn't get them all in. And I said, wow. I mean, if we both had the same dream, I think you're not, God must really going to be doing this. And sure enough, you guys know the story. We ended up having... You know, 400 kids come. We could feed 400 kids a lunch. Then as soon as we couldn't, you know, fit any more in, we had them waiting outside. And then the school, independent of us, went to two lunches. Then we filled it up twice. Couldn't get all the kids in. Then the school, independent from us, went to three lunches. Then we filled it up three times. We started feeding 1,200 kids. And, and, and we had God talk. We shared the gospel with them. And it's just a powerful thing. But uh, so those so dreams can be uh, predictive as well. And I'm going to give you guys another break. So let's stop right here. We'll start back with the practice and you have some prophecy. So let's take another seven-minute break, and we'll come back right there, okay? Like in Daniel's situation, things, some things that Paul received revelation from, and according to 2 Corinthians 12, he wasn't allowed to speak of. Or he reveals his secret plans to his servants, the prophets. We see that in Amos and Jeremiah. But expects them to keep these revelations secret until he grants them permission to speak about them publicly. So again, just because you had a dream and, you, and God spoke you through it doesn't mean you're supposed to go tell some people about it. Or you might even have a word about somebody. It doesn't mean you're supposed to, necessarily supposed to give it. It might be that God wants you to pray for that person and pray for them. And so just because you receive 
a word from the Lord doesn't mean you're necessarily supposed to go talk about it or talk to somebody about it. Psalm 25, verse 14 says, uh, The Lord confides in those who fear him. It's another great verse on hearing the Lord, isn't it? The Lord confides in those who fear him. They're his friends. And, he's, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he talks to his friends. In other words, he reveals his secrets to those who keep his confidence. He doesn't share his secrets with blabbermouths. The second rule on giving a prophetic word is... Learn to distinguish between the revelation, its interpretation, and its application. It's possible for a person to receive an accurate revelation, but give it a wrong interpretation, and therefore a wrong application. I'll give you an example. We had, again, it was a Wednesday night service back in our old building. And many of you know uh, Bob and Julie Mendonza have the orphanage in Kenya. And it's just doing a great Great job. Naomi's Village, they're building a school now. But Bob is an orthopedic surgeon, and he was an orthopedic surgeon here in the Metroplex. And they came, became part of our church. And during one of the Wednesday night meetings, it was just the weirdest thing, because we're doing worship, and I'm not thinking about getting prophetic words. I'm just worshiping, and, I'm, and I looked around the room for a moment, and I, and I looked over at Bob and Julie for a second, and I looked back, and I thought, I thought I saw them in safari clothes. It was the weirdest thing, because then I double-took and said, well, they're not wearing safari clothes. But I thought, but that just stuck with me. It was kind of like you never take a, a ball and try to put it underwater, it keeps popping up, you know? It's like, I just saw them in safari clothes. That was the weirdest thing. So after the service, I went up to him and said, uh, I don't know if this means anything to you, but during worship, I saw you guys in safari clothes. And uh, they looked at me, kind of tilt, you know, the old tilt look. (laughs) And so that week, they get a call from a pastor in Kenya, uh, right next to a safari place, and wants to invite them to come for the summer and do ministry. And also, Kajabi Hospital invites him to come to Kenya to be an orthopedic surgeon uh, for the summer. And so, and so on the phone, some of the very things I said, like I said, I, and I see you in this subtropical climate. I started talking, there's other things. And, he, and everything I said in that word was said, was said on the phone to him. It's just like, and he just starts laughing. Now, I didn't know, I didn't know the interpretation. I didn't know what it meant. So he goes, so they, they go and spend the summer in Kenya. They go on a safari but they're doing ministry. They're, 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 they're doing ministry in the hospital. He's an orthopedic surgeon and so forth. Like, he ends up doing that for four summers. And another, then I got the second word. After, after the first summer, I got a second word. I, I said, I, see you guys, I saw you guys going back and forth, back and forth, and then going to stand. And sure enough, they ended up going four summers, and then they moved there. And he didn't do it because I had his word. It was just something that was confirmation to him that the Lord was already speaking to him. And by the way, that's another thing about a word. For someone to get one word and not hear another confirmation from it, I wouldn't act on that. In fact, if it's just one, I'd say, I don't even call that a word. I call it a witness. On the basis of two or three witnesses, let everything be confirmed, right? So if I get, if, if, if a lot of times someone will tell me something and I'm thinking, I'll just kind of ponder it, but if I get it two or three times, you know, like in my own time with God or another person comes up, then it's like, I think it's a word of the Lord there, right? 
So again, God, when God's speaking, he typically speaks more than one way. All right, so don't, don't expect it's just going to be one, one thing said. That that's, that's the Lord. Okay, a third rule on giving prophetic words is always give prophetic words in humility. Avoid phrases like, thus saith the Lord. These kind of phrases imply a very high level of clarity and authority. A clarity and authority that God is not giving very many people today. Try saying something like, I think the Lord might be saying, or it occurs to me. Walk in humility. And I'll just, if I give, if I give someone a word, or, and I'll just, I'll come up and say, it occurs to me, or, or I'll say, uh, I think the Lord might be saying this. And then after I say it, I'll ask him, does that mean anything to you? You know? And so, so just, if, if, it's, if it's God's, if it's from God, he will put the authority on it. We don't need to put the authority on it by saying, thus saith the Lord, and then start speaking King's English, you know? You know, just talk like a normal person. Do it with humility. Lead the results to God. Once you deliver a prophetic message, your job is over except to pray. If your advice or encouragement or exhortation is not taken, you shouldn't feel rejected. Nor should you feel that those who refuse your advice are in the grip of evil or hard-hearted. It's not up to you to make someone heed a message from the Lord. So just realize that. It's like, I, you know, God gave me this. I think I'm supposed to deliver it, deliver it in love and humility. And that's it. You don't have to make sure it all works. All right, C, uh, testing prophetic revelation, okay? The obvious one is, does it conform to Scripture? The Holy Spirit will not contradict himself. Does, you know, there was a, back when I was a college pastor, there was a young college couple that I found out from someone else was living together. So I just went over to the apartment and knocked on the door, and uh, she answered the door, and then he came up to the door, and I said, hey, guys, and they both just looked at me, and, and I, I said, can I come in? I said, uh, sure. I came in and sat down, and I said, so who lives here? She said, I, I do. He, I do he, well, we do. I said, okay. They were both brand new Christians. I understood that. I wasn't coming you know, to, to hurt them. I wanted to help them. And I said, well, you do understand so I just started walking through what the Bible has to say about marriage and sex and marriage and guidelines. And I was just trying to help them understand it because I knew they probably hadn't been taught it. And one of them said, well, we think the Lord has spoken to us that this is okay. In fact, he said, this morning we got up and had a quiet time together. I said, well, that's good, but let me tell you, you can know that wasn't the Lord because he would not say something that contradicts his word. So I'm walking through the scriptures again, you know, this is so whatever you think you're hearing, it's not the Lord because he won't contradict his written word. So that's another good you know, guideline for us is remembering that uh, when we test them, we test the uh, words by the scriptures. Another test is, does it glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? That is always the result of what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Ask yourself the question, will this glorify Jesus? The Spirit-filled church, by the way, talks about Jesus all the time, not the Holy Spirit all the time. The Holy Spirit didn't come to point attention to himself, right? The Holy Spirit came to point to Jesus. He's, he's wanting to always point attention to Jesus. So the, the evidence of a Spirit-filled church is not that the, Spirit, the church is always talking about the Holy Spirit. The church ought to always be talking about Jesus all the time because that's what the Holy Spirit wants to cause attention to go to, is to Jesus. All right, does, does the word resonate with our spirits? You know what I mean by resonate? You know how you have a 
the vibrations, you know, you can have a, a tuning fork and you can hit it and a certain bell will, will, start to, will start to resonate with that certain frequency vibration. In other words, does it resonate with your spirit? Do you just think, that's, that's, that's just true. That's true. That's part of the testing. Uh, does it bear fruit? Does it produce good results in the lives of those who hear it? All right, if there's a prediction, predictive, um, prediction does, does the prediction take place? All right, do those with a gift of discernment confirm it? I think, it's, I think it's great if you have some people on a prayer team. If you could have a person on a prayer team, let's say you had a prayer team of four people, I would want one of the four to have the gift of discerning spirits. If I could just pick the giftedness, I'd want one to be prophetic, one to have the gift of discerning spirits, one to probably be pastoral, you know, and all that, to, to really minister to somebody. Because the person with the gift of discerning spirits, they just need to not say nothing. And then, I look at them and say, well, what, are you, what are you getting there, something? And it's, uh, we have some, some folks in our church, I believe, had that gift. And there's been times I've, I've had a meeting with somebody, they all ask them to come sit in the meeting. And sometimes people don't know why they're sitting in the meeting because they didn't say anything. I'm just asking them to sit there. And I'll, to ask, and I'll talk to them later about it. I just want to see what they're picking up. But uh, that's another important gift in the body of Christ is that gift of discerning spirits. Okay. Uh, so let's look at number four, uh, Roman number four, the problem of New Testament prophecy. Generally speaking, the problem of New Testament prophecy is twofold. Either the church tends to be too tight, quenching the spirit, or the church can be too loose, letting false words go unchecked that brings all sorts of damage to people. Okay, so when things are too tight, the spirit is quenched. We already saw that, First Thessalonians 5, 19-22. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. So things can be too tight theologically. Things can be too tight practically for that to happen. And uh, I really think, you know, I think that our, our G-Hop meetings is a great place for prophetic words to come. I think I encourage people to say, I'm, I'm wanting to hear from the Lord. I, I would encourage them, go sit in some, go ahead, sit in some live G-Hop meetings and, uh, and, let, and just see what comes out of those meetings. I know, I know a lady that went to the mission field because she had one question. She wanted to know if the Lord wanted her to go or not. She went to a meeting. She said, Lord, I'm here for one meeting for this reason. I want, to, I want you to speak to me today. A guy got up and gave a prophetic word, and all he did was say, go. And he went and sat down. <laughs> that was it. And she said, that was the word I was waiting for. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, don't despise prophetic utterances. Maybe you've been hurt by them before. I have. And uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Okay, and when things are too loose, people can get hurt. There was a man who showed up here, uh, I don't know how many years ago, five, six years ago, maybe seven years ago. And he, 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 was, uh, he, he came and told me he was prophetic, which always makes me a little nervous when the first thing they do is introduce themselves as prophetic people. Uh, and he, he tells me he's prophetic, and then he uh, begins to drop names of people that he's connected with that are big prophetic people. And I said, that's all fine, even though we're not too impressed with names here in this place, except the name of Jesus. Uh, and then he starts taking people off alone and giving them words in the corners of the building, you know. And... And so I find out he's actually 
In fact, he, he takes a 14-year-old girl off by herself in this property and, and tells her, begins to give her word, and then says that, and then starts to say things like, I wish I was younger because you're so beautiful. Well, anyways, this starts to get back to me. So I, I, I go to him and I say, I say, listen, I know you believe you're prophetic. I don't know if you are or not. I don't know. I don't know you. But I do know this. I'm saying as the pastor of this church, you can't give another prophetic word on this property without me standing next to you. I said, and we'll do that for a season. I said, and then if it's really, and I'm convinced you're prophetic, then we'll release, you know, we'll start to release you. But you, you cannot give another prophetic word on this property. I can't control what he does when he's out and about. But on this property, you cannot give a prophetic word without, without coming and getting me and me standing next to you. Well, he was so offended by this. And he started bad-mouthing me, and where do you get off? And you, you're trying to control the Spirit of God and all this kind of stuff. I said, no, I'm not. I'm just, I just don't trust you. And I love these people. I'm not going to let you do this anymore to people. Well, he had actually in, in, he had endeared himself to a couple of families in our church and convinced them that I was this evil guy that was trying to control the Holy Spirit. And so when he, let, when we, when he basically left, and he let, they left with him. And I just wish I could have had five, you know, ten minutes where they'd listen to me, but they wouldn't because he, he had so poisoned them about me that there's nothing I could say, you know. And, and so there's, you know, when things get too loose, then people get hurt. So there needs to be some, some care in this. And I appreciate some of the people in here that have come to me and said, I believe I have a prophetic word for somebody here. Would you come with me? I appreciate that. Because what they're saying is, I want you to stand there, and because I really feel strong about this, and, and I feel good about standing there for two reasons. One, I want to hear what they're about to say. Two is, I want to protect the person they're talking to. I want to make sure they don't get hurt, because I love them. And so I appreciate that heart. That's a, that's a humble heart, a cooperative heart. And I, I, it doesn't have to be me, but I think, you're, I think there's times, if you think you have a prophetic word for somebody, you ought to have somebody that's, I think, a shepherd in some way. You ought to grab them and say, come over here with me. An elder, a pastor, it could be a small group leader, or somebody who's who's going to be pastoral to come and make sure that we're really not hurting people, you know. And uh, so we need to be careful; it can't be too loose. All right, conclusion here: uh, pursue love, yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So desire to prophesy so you can encourage, exhort, and console others. Desire to prophesy so you can build others up. And the way to grow in prophetic ministry is to grow in your friendship with Jesus and your knowledge of the written word of God. Okay, let's talk about dreams and visions some. And okay, in Acts chapter 2, this is a real important passage here. Turn to Acts 2, starting verse 14. Acts 2, starting verse 14. It says, now Peter, or the Holy Spirit's fallen right upon them. Peter's going to stand up and he's going to preach. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all of you live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Stop again. Let me say that again. But this, let's just read exactly what it says. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. He doesn't say this is like... What was spoken of through the prophet Joel, does he? He 
says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I'll pour, out, pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. All right, so what is the word of God saying here? He's saying that this, that he and the infant church were experiencing the outpouring of God's spirit, is that prophesied by the Old Testament prophet Joel. That means, and that this clause does not mean this is like that. It means Pentecost fulfilled what Joel described. Now, certainly the outpouring of the Spirit on 120 Jews could not in itself fulfill the prediction of an outpouring upon all flesh. But it was the beginning of the fulfillment. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the followers of Jesus that was prophesied had arrived on Pentecost. So the age of the Spirit is now ushered in. And it would continue until all the events that Joel prophesied, including the destruction of Israel's enemies, the cosmic disturbances, the return of the Lord. That day of the Lord, I mean, mean this age of the Spirit will continue until all that's fulfilled. So that's the first thing I want you to notice. Second thing about this passage I want you to notice. In this new age, the anointing of the Holy Spirit will not be limited to kings, prophets, and judges. It will be given to all God's people without differentiation of office, class, or age, or sex. That means that this outpouring God's Spirit that resulted in prophecy and dreams and visions was not only for the apostles. It was for all true believers. We also get that out of Acts 2. All right? Thirdly, This error of the outpoured spirit will continue until the great and glorious day of the Lord. Let's read the rest of the passage, Acts 2, 19 and 20. The rest of Joel's prophecy, and I'll grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath blood and fire, vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. So Acts chapter 2 tells us that these controversial gifts that began at Pentecost will continue until the Lord returns. So Acts 2 is telling us the same thing 1 Corinthians 13 is telling us, right? It's telling us the same thing. Those gifts that some parts of the body of Christ consider controversial, prophecy, dreams, visions, words of knowledge, so forth, have not passed away. They will continue until the Lord returns. Why? Because we are in the age of the Spirit. We're in the age of the outpoured Spirit. Now, it's not, not like it. We're in it. That's what the Bible says. Now, so what do Christians who believe these gifts have ceased have to say about Acts 2? Dr. Merrill Unger, a well-respected evangelical scholar and teacher who believed these gifts ceased, wrote this. I want you, I, I put the quote in your notes, right? It's in your notes. Here's what he says. Here's the exact quote. In the error of an outpoured spirit in full and a full written revelation to guide. We walk by faith and normally have little need for such unusual methods of guidance. Did you hear what he just said? That sounds like Joel 2.28 in reverse. Doesn't it? That's not what the the passage says. See, what he's saying is that since the Spirit has been poured out and we have the written revelation, we no longer need prophecy, dreams, and visions. 
But that's not what the passage says. The passage says because the Spirit has been poured out, we will have prophecy, dreams, and visions. There's a gigantic difference between those two, isn't there? And the idea that these are unusual methods of guidance seems inconsistent with what we, what we see follow in the book of Acts. It doesn't seem unusual there. It seems fairly common. This age of the Spirit will continue until we see all of Joel's prophecy fulfilled. So dreams, prophecy, visions are for today. God is still speaking today. Of course, the question again, is anyone listening? Job thirty three fourteen again, for God does speak now one way, now another, though man does not perceive it. Right, let's talk a little bit about dreams and visions here. Do you guys, I don't know how many of you guys know that the inventor of the modern sewing machine, Elias Howe, do you know that he got his idea for the invention of the sewing machine, sewing machine from a dream? Or that the physicist Niels Bohr, Nobel Prize winner, claimed that he'd seen the structure of an atom, of the atom in a dream? You know, modern readers, a lot of times, particularly in the West, which is much more rationalism, they, 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 even today, people think that, seem to think that it is abnormal to believe that God could be speaking to you through a dream, where most the rest of the world doesn't think like that. They don't think like that. They had not thought that way in history. They don't think that way today. For example, in history, the Philistine king Abimelech, remember, thought Sarah was only Abraham's sister? So he took her for his wife, and then God came to Abimelech in a dream, and here's what he said to him. You're as good as dead because the woman you've taken, she's married, a married woman. So what does Abimelech do? He gets up the next day and gives her back to Abraham. Says, I can't believe you did this to me. Right? He had a dream. He believed God spoke to him in a dream. That was very common in the ancient world. And it's very common in lots of parts of the world today. And, uh, but in Bible times, people clearly knew that God spoke frequently through dreams and they took them seriously. There's, uh, I've, I've told you guys some of the story of you know, Steve Waters, Steve G. Waters, you know, overseas workers for our church family, finished the Bible translation of the Zonghua language, the language really of the country of Bhutan. And, but his father did uh, the Bible translation of uh, the calm people in the Himalaya region. And there's a wonderful story of how God led them with angel footprints in the snow and all this. I can tell you, it's a long story. But they needed a Bible translator, and they needed someone who spoke Nepali, but also spoke calm language. And the story, and the man's name that they eventually had was, his name was Kaka. And they had, uh, and, uh, you know, in, in, in that language, it's not a bad word, so don't be laughing about that, okay? Uh, okay, but, but it's such an awesome story because, because the way the Lord led them to this people group, and they had run out of food, they were stranded on a pass, they had to slide down this icy pass, and they wouldn't have done it had they not seen footprints that night. The Lord had told them an angel would lead them, and sure enough, the next day there's footprints that they followed all the way down the village. It's an awesome story. But they, they realized they're going to need someone that speaks Napoleon calm, and so they go to the bridge, they're standing in the village, and they say, we need, you know, we're going to need to make that first contact. And out comes Kaka, he comes out to the bridge, because he had a dream the night before that some white men are going to come and bring them the word of God. So he comes to them and, and meets them on a bridge, and they say to him, uh, he speaks Nepali, so they're speaking Nepali, and say, you know, we, we need someone to help us with this language. And he said, I'll help you on one condition. And he left. He went back to his house, and he brings out a shoebox. And, and I got to tell you a little backstory here, because 
during the, during, the, during the war, during World War II, he fought with the British. There are a number of these uh, uh, Nepali Gurkha warriors, and he was one of them. And so on a train, while he was uh, with, fighting with the British, someone handed him a New Testament. And he couldn't understand it, so he put it in his box, but he knew it was special. He put it in his box. So he comes back out with a box to the bridge and says, he says, uh, I'll help you guys on one condition. He pulls out the New Testament and says, if you'll tell me everything you know about this Jesus in this book right here. <laughs> Do you think God might have been involved in that? <laughs> That's just too good. Okay, so through history, God has spoken through dreams to people, and he still does it. Today, So what do we know about dreams? All right, number one, understand where dreams come from. They can come from a few different places. One, natural. The natural, Ecclesiastes 5.3, for a dream comes with much busyness. Sometimes we're just preoccupied with all kinds of stuff, right? And we have a dream, and it makes no sense. We know it's not from God. It's just bizarre, right? So you forget about that one. Okay, or a dream can be divine, Numbers 12, 6, he said, Hear my words, if there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in dreams. But also, there can be, we can be harassed by the enemy. Jeremiah 23, verse 32, Behold, I am against those who have prophesied false dreams, declares the Lord, and related them and led my people astray by their falsehoods and reckless boasting. Yet I did not send them or command them, nor do they furnish this people the slightest benefit, declares the Lord. So just because you have a dream doesn't mean it's from God, right? But it could be. So how do we test it? All right. Well, here's how you test dreams. First of all, does the message agree with Scripture? And uh, even at Acts 17, 11, many of you are familiar with that passage. It talks about the Bereans were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica because they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. So, so we need to really, does this dream line up with Scripture? And by the way, let me say a word about the symbols and dreams. The symbols and dreams are typically the same as that symbols used in the Bible. So if you have a symbol in a dream and say, what does a symbol mean? See how it's used in the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit's consistent in the symbols and when he uses symbols. So keep that in mind. All right, also regarding dreams, testing them. Does a dream or vision draw us closer to Jesus Christ? By the way, the factual accuracy of the dream does not alone constitute evidence of divine origin. Deuteronomy 3, 13, verses 1 through 5, warns against prophets whose words came to pass, but who say, let us go after other gods. And by the way, this is way, when they pick, when they pick the Dalai Lama, you know, many of you guys remember Stephen Hishi. He was, he was training, being training, training to be a, he's Tibetan, he's a Tibetan Buddhist being trained to be a monk. And he comes to know Jesus. And then we end up working with his ministry out of northern India into the Himalaya region. And he became one of my dearest friends. He's in heaven now. I miss him greatly. But he would actually, was telling me how they would pick the Dalai Lama. And, it, it, and they would pick this little boy. And there's a long process. And one thing this little boy could do is he had all this, he had all kinds of, of dreams about people that were true. But then he's leading them away from the true living God. So just because it's true doesn't mean it's from the Lord, right? So we've got to make sure that it really lines up with, with uh, the Word of God and with the purposes of God. All right. Uh, 
see does the dream get confirmed with other Christians, especially when it calls for action. What's interesting, in Acts 16, after Paul had his vision about going to Macedonia, he act, it says they, they concluded. So they, they met together and talked about it. They concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel there. So Paul doesn't just say, I had a dream, we're going, does he? He says, hey, I had this dream, what do you guys think? He gets them together, and they conclude together, this is the Lord. Isn't that neat? And so you don't just get a dream and off on your own go. You say, I think you get some other godly believers and say, hey, I had this dream, what do you think? Let's, let's, I want your input on it. And that would keep a lot of believers from making a lot of big mistakes. You know? So getting confirmation from other godly believers is really, really helpful. All right, third, know why God gives dreams. Uh, the, the biggest reason in the Old Testament he gives dreams is warnings. And I'll give you some examples of that. Abimelech, Laban, wise, the wise men, remember, warned not to go back to Herod. Joseph warned, and he escapes, escapes with Mary and baby Jesus, to uh, Egypt. Pilate's wife, you know, there's, there's, there's warning dreams. Apostle Paul's warned. And so, and by the way, if you have a dream... Has a message of disaster or doom doesn't mean that doesn't mean it's an inevitable that will happen. It could be a warning that it could happen. We see that in the Bible. This could happen. You had a dream about it and think, wow. And, and now you're supposed to pray it doesn't happen. You're supposed to you know be involved and work in such a way it doesn't happen. But sometimes there will be a dream given that doesn't have to be that way, but it will, will be that way. It will be disaster if something doesn't change. We see that as well. So don't take a message of disaster and doom in a dream as inevitable. God may warn us through such a dream and calls to repentance or intercessory prayer. If the warning is heeded, the prediction does not have to take place like in Abimelech. Remember, Abimelech, he's got said, Abimelech, you're as good as dead because you took another man's wife. And he's like, I didn't touch her yet. Give her back. He doesn't, God doesn't kill him, right? So it doesn't have to happen that way. It can be, be a warning. I was dealing with, with a very, very difficult situation many years ago, and I had, and during the, during, during the night, I can't get, get into this whole long story, but it involved, it involved the satanic high priest of Fort Worth and his daughter, and uh, who had come to our church, and it involved FBI, it involved uh, investigators from Fort Worth, who, so it was, it was really a complicated story of us ministering this girl, and yet these legal people want me to get her to testify against her father who, was, who had murdered people as a satanic high priest. So it was really a very bizarre and drawn-out story. But, it was, uh, but in the process, I was in a real spiritual war with, with uh, the demonic powers. And there was a few nights that it were very, really some very, very dark nights of me wrestling in prayer just to, and I don't want to sound over dramatic about this, but I was just praying that I would live through the night. Again, I'm not trying to hype this. I'm just telling you where that was where I was. Three nights in a row praying that I would live through the night. And but one but but after that, but during that time I got a phone call from three different pastors who knew me saying, The Lord woke me up in the middle of the night to pray for you. What's going on? Three different guys. And and so there's a you know, there's definitely times in which that, that uh, God will bring revelation and support in the midst of that. And I think that he woke them up. I think they were given dreams to pray for me. Okay, another thing that dreams can uh, do is bring about guidance. We see that in Acts 16 and uh, also in Matthew chapter 1. 
two different situations, Matthew chapter 2. Uh, some years ago, we had our, our young adult group went to Colorado to go skiing. And they had a great group of young, of, of young people. They're all like in their low 20s. And one of them decided to go up the mountain one more time, make one more run. And, and this is right before it gets dark. And then they close down the ski lift because they don't want anybody caught up in the dark. Well, he decides to, uh, he skis into the woods for a moment because he wanted just to, you know, enjoy this last run. And he pauses and, and it starts to get dark. He gets turned around in the woods. He starts going the wrong way. Well, he gets lost on the mountain for three days. He's lost for three days on the mountain. He happens to know survival skills. And he did well. But you know how he found him? One of the guys in the, that was part of the rescue team had a dream. He's a Christian. He has a dream. He goes to a supervisor. after They've been looking for him for three days. They know this mountain. They can't find him. He goes and has, uh, he has this dream. He goes to the supervisor and says, I know where he's at. The supervisor says, what do you mean you know where he's at? I, I know where he's at. The Lord showed me where he's at. The supervisor's like, well, well just, just to humor me, where is he? And so he goes with the map, and he shows them on a map. He's right here. I saw him right here in my dream. And they, on the backside of the steep part of a mountain. And he's like, there's no way he can be there. He says, he's there. I saw him in a dream. He's there. And he's like, no, we're not doing that. We're not taking anybody over there. We're not doing this. He says, I know he's there. Let me go. I know he's there. So eventually he talks him into allowing him, him to go over this cliff and rappel down. Because that's to where he was in his dream. So the guy's, the guy's name was Dale Perryman, the, the, the part of our church at the time. And Dale tell, tells me the story. He said he's the third day, and he's taking his socks off, you know, and putting them under his armpits and doing all kinds of things to keep his feet dry and warm. And he's doing all kinds of stuff in the snow. But uh, he said, and he's, and he's in a ball. He had moved, and, that, and he's at the very spot this guy saw in a dream, exact spot. And all of a sudden, this guy's rappelling down the side of the mountain. He's singing this Christian song. He's singing. He's praising God. You know, he's, he looks up and this guy's praising God coming down the mountain. He said, I'm here. I'm here. He said, I know where you're at. You know, <laughs> he'd already seen him. God revealed it in a dream. Also, dreams foretelling of events is another reason God gives dreams. Uh, we see that in Joseph. Life in Genesis 37:40, and Pharaoh was given a dream. Uh, the Midianite was given a dream in Judges 7. Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, Daniel 2 and Daniel 4. Daniel's dream in Daniel 7. Daniel. So he gives these foretelling events. We had a, uh, <clears throat> I had a dream in which there was this. Uh, it was really it was a dream where I was in the bayou in Louisiana. And, and, and there is this, 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 this lady, this, this, this woman pulls up and she's like in, you know, this little canoe, you know, P. Rose, she's coming up there and she's, she's sultry, you know, she's, she is a temptress. And I see her come in, but then I then changes, I see her come out of the bayou and come into our church. And then I see her uh, trying to tempt men in our church. And I, and I just so I had that dream the next morning, this church. And I'm standing in the foyer, and this woman walks in. And since she walks in, I said, I thought, there she is. That's the woman in my dream. Now what do I do? 
And sure enough, she comes up to me, and she comes right up to me, and she starts flirting with me in the foyer. And I thought, well, you know, we'll keep our eye on this woman, because obviously God's giving me a warning. Well, she asked for financial help. And so one of our elders was going to go over to her, her home to help her financially. And he was trying to find someone else to go with him, and he couldn't find anyone, so he decided to bring one of his uh, one of his older children with him just to make sure there's someone there with him. So he goes to her home and he walks in her house and starts saying, well, let me see. he wants to try to help her with her finances. And she says, uh, what does your church believe about adultery? He said, it's wrong. <laughs> She's like, well, some churches don't believe it's wrong. Just wonder if y'all believe, what do you believe? And she comes up and she starts, you know, coming up and massaging his shoulders. And he's like, you know, I got to go. I got to leave. And he got out of there. And then he calls me and tells me. So I started doing some checking on this gal. And she had come, she actually was from South Louisiana, interesting enough. She actually was from the bayou. But she had also moved to California. And I found out what her real name was. She was giving us a false name. And there was a warrant for arrest in California. So I said, I'd like you to come to my office. I want to talk to you. And she says, I'll be glad to come. She walks in my office. As soon as she walks in, I, tell, I call her by her real name. And she stops in her tracks. And she's like, how do you know that? I said, I also know you're, you have a warrant for your arrest in California. And so anyway, she, she put down all the tempting after that. Now she's worried about whether or not she's going to get in trouble. And so basically confront her. But, and uh, eventually she disappears. And she was out of there. But it was, again, it was a warning dream. It was a simple warning dream and to watch out for, for her. So God does speak to us through dreams. And we need to ask God to help us understand and interpret the dream. Remember Genesis 40 verse 8, just because you have the dream doesn't mean you have the interpretation of it. So ask God for the interpretation. Remember what Joseph said, Joseph said the interpretation belongs to God, right? So we need to just ask what, 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 it, what, what the dream means. And also some people say this at this point, if God wanted me to know something, why would he give me some dream that's hard to understand? And I don't, my response would be to say, well, why were dreams in the Bible often difficult to interpret? So they're difficult even in the Bible. And why did Jesus speak in parables? I think it's because God wants us to continue in a dependent relationship with him. So even for the interpretation, we need to depend upon him. So we live in the age of the outpoured spirit. The effect of living in that age is we will have prophecies, dreams, and visions among us. He's speaking today. Are you listening? And I would encourage you, I don't know how many of you, I bet you, I could, a number of you raise your hand. You had a dream during the night. You believe it was from God. You thought you'd remember it the next day. You woke up the next day and you forgot it. And you wish you would have wrote it down, right? How many of you raise your hand? How many of you feel like that? A bunch of you. And uh, so I, that's why he told Daniel to write these things down too. I mean, write it down. Just because it's from God doesn't mean you're still going to remember it. But... Uh, one of Joseph, who said, if you had the dream twice, it means it's going to, surely it's going to happen and soon. Do I remember the verse? So particularly watch out for dreams you've had twice. There's something significant about that as well. Okay, what I want to do is uh, I'm going to, we're going to take one short break, and then we're going to go into, I'm going to teach a little bit more, and then we're going to go into a 
time of lab. Okay, we have class and we have lab. All right, so what I mean by lab is we're going to seek the Lord together and we're going to ask God to just speak to us. And uh, what I'm going to do, I, I don't know exactly what, how the Lord wants to work this. Debbie's is here going to lead us in some worship in a moment. You know, remember Elijah was followed by Elisha? Elisha the prophet was asked to give a prophetic word during Jehoshaphat's reign. And Elisha said, okay, bring me the minstrel of the Lord first. Y'all remember that story? And then the minstrel of the Lord comes, and then he prophesies. There's something about entering into worship, and then we'll ask the Lord to release any prophetic words here. And uh, so I don't know how this is going to go, but God knows how this is going to go. We're going we're to see what he wants to do. But we'll start with worship, and then we'll go into a time, and we'll... You know, we'll finish not too, not too long. But let's take one more break. This will be our last break, another five minutes. And then we're going to come back. I'm going to teach her like a, maybe 10 or 15 minutes more. I want you to see what the life of Jesus, what he does here. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You know, and so this is, and then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus, as he empties himself, and according to Philippians 2, you know, he, he doesn't hold on to equality with God, a thing to be grasped or be held on to. So Jesus, when he empties himself, when the Son of God becomes a man, he really becomes a man. He really, he really does let go of divine prerogatives by choice. He does this. That's why he doesn't do any miracles until after his baptism when the Holy Spirit will come upon him. Then he does miracles because he's going to do the miracles he does as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is a son of God, but he's, he, is, he, is, he, is, you know, he has released divine prerogatives. He, has, I mean, he, has a, he could use them, but he's chosen not to. So he will do what he does as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's important. For us to understand that he really does empty himself, he really becomes a man, and he really will do what he does at, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when he has prophetic insight into a situation, and we're going to look at a very a simple one in the life of Nathaniel, he is he has this. This is a word of knowledge. It's not that well. He's speaking as God here and as man here, as God here and man here. He's become a man. And he's doing things by the power of the Holy Spirit. All the gifts of the Spirit are resident in him. That's why after he resurrects and ascends, he distributes gifts to the body of Christ. Because he had them all. Okay? So he, he releases them all. You know, different ones to different ones of us. But he had them all. All right? So this, the situation we're about to look at, I want you to understand. I understand it. He's have, this is a word of knowledge by the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at John chapter 1. Let's turn there. John chapter 1, I want you to see this story. And I want to make a point that I think will be helpful to us. John 1. Let's just read verse 43 through 46 first. John 1, 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip... And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Now, understand, first of all, Nathanael knew the Old Testament. He knew that the Messiah would be born where? Bethlehem. This guy's from Nazareth. How can he be the Messiah? That's what he's that's real his real question, okay? So he's really wondering about this. How could this be Jesus? How could Jesus be the Messiah? All right, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered, said to him, Because before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay, stop there. So Jesus knew his name, but even more importantly, through a word of knowledge, he says, I saw you under the fig tree. Now at this point, I would, I would kind of rate that word of knowledge along the lines of me saying, someone in this room has a headache. I mean, on a scale of one to ten words of knowledge, I give that about a two. If I just heard it, I'm talking about if I just heard it and I'm standing around, I would think, I mean, there's fig trees everywhere. It's hot. People are sitting under them. He could have guessed that. Okay? But that doesn't account for Nathaniel's response. Verse 49. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Whoa. I mean, what kind of response for that, that simple word? I saw you sitting underneath the fig tree. And that kind of response? I want you to think about if you just, if you just stood around and heard that word given to Nathaniel, you probably would think, that was kind of a general word. What's Nathaniel getting so excited about? He really seems to think this is a big deal. Now, Nathaniel was an Israelite in whom was no guile, and he apparently knew the scriptures. He was waiting for the Messiah, especially during this time of Roman occupation, heavy taxation. Now, it is possible that under the fig tree, I want you to just imagine this, under the fig tree sat a man who's asking the question, God, do you even see me? I mean, we're waiting for the Messiah. Is he even coming? And do you even see me? Do you hear my cry? People are oppressed. Do you even see me? And then Philip says, come. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, my point being simply this, that I've seen this happen so many times where I've heard someone give a prophetic word to somebody that sounded so general, so vague, and that person is weeping because it wasn't general and vague to them. The words that were used, the things that were said, were exactly what they were talking to God about. So you've got to be careful how you judge prophetic words given to someone besides you. Be 
careful how you judge them. And you wonder, why are they weeping? They're so easily impressed. Nathaniel's so easily impressed. Well, there's probably a lot more going on there. And Nathaniel heard exactly what he needed to hear. Some of you guys that were here during our prayer conference and uh, Gary Benjamin shared his story about being in the prayer room. He kept going to the prayer room and kept saying, anything, Lord, anything, anything. And he was saying, anything to get me out of this prayer room. Just do something, anything, anything, anything. And then he had someone prophesy over him and said, this guy didn't, didn't know anything about this. And came up and prophesied and said, you have said, old man, to the Lord, anything, 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 anything. <laughs> what does he do? He begins to weep. Now, anyone else in the room is thinking, what was that? Anything. They don't know the whole story. See, I've seen that happen hundreds and hundreds of times. And so you've got to be careful uh, how you judge it and say, well, that just sounded pretty vague and general to me. And how come, they're, how come they are in a pile right there and feel like God has heard me, God has spoke to me? Because God knows exactly the language to use. And uh, what I want us to do, and I'm just, that's all I'm going to do here, uh, Except to say, remember this too, Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. You know, he, he did what he saw the Father doing. He said what the Father said to say. You know, he was, he was on assignment. And, and just as the Father sent him, so he sends us, he says, right? So we want to know what Jesus is saying. What does Jesus want to say today? And we're just going to go into worship. And I think, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time to do this. And I just I thought we'd give God a chance to speak to, to us. And after we worship a while, <clears throat> what I may do, we'll just see if the Lord leads us away, but we may just say, because we don't have time to, probably don't have time, I think we'll do a couple things. In fact, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Let's go ahead and stand up. <laughs> Let's go ahead and stand up, and I want to pray, and then we're just going to go into worship, and we'll see what the Lord wants to do. Father, we, we're so grateful that you have saved us for this time in history. That you, Lord, have, I believe, I believe that miracle in Cana was, a, was prophetic. I believe you saved the best for last. And so, Lord, we want to walk in that. We want to walk as a prophetic people. And, Lord, we don't want, uh, we don't want to, to make stuff up. But we just want to hear you. We want to hear you today. So, Lord, we just ask even now before we go into worship, would you cleanse us from from things we believe that are wrong, we repent from those wrong beliefs. Those of us who've maybe backslidden for a while and hadn't heard from you, Lord, we repent from that too. We repent from sin we've allowed in our life, attitudes, practices. We just repent from that. We ask you to cleanse us, consecrate us. Come, Holy Spirit, and just have your way in us. Have your way, Jesus. You're the head of the church. Have your way. This is your church. You're the head. Have your way during this moment, Lord. I pray you just, every one of us will be filled fresh today by your spirit. I pray we'd all be more prophetic because you've imparted greater faith today and released gifts, even today, even in this hour. So we ask for ears to hear. We ask for eyes to see. Right now, Lord, we just want to worship you and ask you to just lead us now, however you want, in Jesus' name.